Hello, uh, this is Darren from the future. So yes, as you may have guessed, this is not in fact our episode covering Apocalypse Now with Alex Towers, the fantastic Brian Lloyd. We unfortunately did not get that uh, covered before we broke for hiatus uh, for Andrew's upcoming nuptials. To be fair, uh, it does feel oddly appropriate that we should leave that season unfinished and that Apocalypse Now should be delayed by several months. Uh, it feels like we are in some ways doing the movie a service by covering it in such a way. Heads up as well, uh, scheduling is going to be a little hectic from here on out. We had hoped to completely cover Andrew's uh, time away, including the wedding, including the planning of the wedding, including the aftermath of the wedding and the honeymoon. We did not get that done. So what we are going to do is we're going to end up going with uh, generally a two-week-on, one-week-off policy to split the episodes that we already have in the can and kind of just spread them out a little bit and make them last a little bit longer. Uh, at Curd Plan, our plan is to be back recording regular episodes in June, so we hope that you'll stick with us until then. But we have a fantastic array uh, lined up for you. So this week, of course, we have the fantastic Lee Markey will be joining us to talk about Come and See. Then uh, we're going to take a week off. Then we're going to be back. We're going to be with the wonderful Jay Coyle, fantastic Eva Martin, talking about Doctor Strangelove. Then we're going to be covering uh, The Hangover, While Hungover. Myself and Andrew recorded a special episode at the Stag while we were both maybe not our most coherent that will be going out the week of andrew's wedding so if you want to wish him a happy uh wedding that would be the time to do it then we're going to take a week off we're going to be back possibly to do something related to dr strange uh, we need to figure out what that is and then we're going to be back covering train spotting and train spotting 2 or t2 train spotting uh with the wonderful emma kylie will be joining us for both of those and if we're not ready to go by the time that we run through that we will hopefully have some other stuff lined up for you uh, with that in mind, then, we're just going to segue neatly, and we hope you enjoy this episode with Come and See with the great Lee Murky. Fantastic guest, wonderful discussion. Thanks so much, guys. Bye. Hello and welcome to The 250, your weekly podcast look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I'm doing very well, Darren. How are you this evening? I I mean, I, I did just finish watching uh, the 1985 oh, Soviet anti-war movie, Come and See, so I feel like there's you did maybe an a Andrew. ceiling. You've, you've yeah. just <laughs> seen the movie. I've almost yeah. done what you've done. What you normally Have do. Have you watched it three times? Have no, you it no. Three times? I watched it okay. well in advance. <laughs> <laughs> so this week our roles was, will be Was reversed. this your third or fourth time? When you were this like, was my third. This was my so third you're in time. a panic to... to watch it for a third time. And it's like, <laughs> oh, I got to finish it. Um, got to watch this third time. Um, this this Soviet anti-war cinema from the wonderful Elon Klimov. Yes, we're talking about Come and See, a 1985 Russian film. And we were talking about it because we have a fantastic guest joining us, uh, the wonderful Mr. Lee Markey. Absolutely. Uh, on YouTube as the fake critic. I've worked with him at The Escapist, uh, who has forgotten more about cinema than I will ever know. How are you, Lee? How are things? I am good. You're far, far, far too kind. But I am good and I'm super excited to talk about this film. Yeah, I, let's, let's talk about that because like, 
I have had come, come and see has been on the list uh, for a very long time. It first came in in 2006. Uh, it dropped off when they changed the voting requirements and it came back on in 2016. It has generally been climbing up the list. It's arguably experienced something of a kind of a renaissance or rediscovery in the 2010s. But I've largely kind of we've steered clear of it because I have. This was my first time watching it, or as Andrew will joke, my first three times watching it, um, because I have friends who are familiar with world cinema who who like recommend this movie completely and unequivocally, think it's a masterpiece, but who also say, I've watched it, I never need to watch that movie again. When I asked you to come on the podcast in December and I gave you a list of the, the 100 movies that we haven't yet covered, I think you replied in 30 seconds, <laughs> I want to talk about Come and See. So yeah. why? What is it about Come and See that was like, yeah, that's the movie I want to talk about? So for me, um, I have a really strange relationship with Come and See. My first time seeing it was a very terrible, uh, dirtied up, damaged print on YouTube. Um, it was the only print available for quite a while, at least in my area. And I was so taken by it. And then it had a uh, restoration in 2019, I want to say. And I saw it in a theater and I just I couldn't believe the difference. And I was I was completely in love with it. And then the Criterion came out in June 2020. And I, I shared it with a room of, of just grizzled horror fans. And they were just they were completely just t- terrified by it. And I, I think that one of the things that I love most about it is it's the definitive anti-war film. From my mind, you know, you have films like Paths of Glory, um, uh, The Ascent, uh, The Cranes Are Flying, Ivan's Childhood, all of these films that are definitely anti-war films. But for my money, Come and See does something that no other film does. And it's, it's, it truly captures the, the horrors of war as hell. And that's why I wanted to talk about it. Plus, most of the discussions I've seen about Come and See online, specifically in YouTube, have been very like reductive, like, ooh, you won't be able to make it through this film. And I, I just don't think that's a really productive way to talk about the film. So, yeah. Yeah. Now, that, that's, a, that's an entirely fair approach to take after I've kind of uh, introduced that reductive take where I'm like, yeah, I kind of realized I'd have to watch <laughs> no, it. No, no. <laughs> it's, 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 but um, all right. And Andrew, had you seen Come and See before we talked about this evening? I had not. I had not seen it for other reasons than you, Derek. Because <laughs> <laughs> my um, my uh, movie buff friends uh, mostly comprise of you, <laughs> so and, and you 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 hadn't yet seen it, so you couldn't recommend it. Um, so no, no, I I hadn't, and and I suppose if I had been looking on the IMDb two fifty for movies to watch and had seen this, I probably wouldn't have picked it out. Because we, we, I guess we have previous, um, with, with kind of Russian cinema, um, with Russian cinema, and and <laughs> and 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 I think the the two of us realize with, um, Tarkovsky's, Tarkovsky's uh, soccer that we were maybe a bit thick. <laughs> no, yes. we, no, we don't. <laughs> um, I, I believe the word I used was dangerously unqualified. Yeah, um, exactly. Yes. It's like we didn't. We certainly did not get this. <laughs> we, I, um, I guess didn't didn't enjoy it. We need a guest. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we need somebody who knows what they're talking about. So yeah. thank you very much, Lee. No um, but 
But actually, it, it, it's worth, before we talk about the movie in a bit of depth, just again, a bit of, little bit of context here, because as we're recording this, this week, the IMDb seem to have like restructured their algorithm uh, in such a way that it tends, it appears like they've just weighted US voters uh, more severely. So we've seen mm. a number of significant changes to the list. We've seen uh, a whole bunch of world cinema movies drop out. So things like Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind is gone. Uh, in the Mood for Love is gone. The two Tarkovsky movies, which are Andrei Rulev and Stalker, are both gone. Uh, Kurosawa's Derzu Uzala fell something like 49 places uh, in the space of a single calculation. Um, and obviously all of the, the anime that isn't Maizaki uh, is also gone entirely from the list and in 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 its stead you know you've had the entry of more conventional 250 movies movies like Jaws for example uh movies like The Help Donnie Darko The Help uh, yeah <laughs> that, that was the punchline for years it's like how does this movie belong to be under 250 and, and it would always be like well it's better than the help so yeah <laughs> that sure was it. That, was the same thing. <laughs> that was my easy answer that the help was the movie that kind of taunted me on the list where yeah. it's like one day i'm gonna have to find somebody who's willing to talk about the help um oh my god yeah, I, I don't. And, and now it's back. So we can start using yeah, that yeah. as the kind of <laughs> metric again. But like one, one of the big things was, that, again, with everything that's happening in the world at the moment, this kind of conspiracy theory that like the IMDb had censored uh, Russian cinema, that there'd been this kind of like behind the scenes thing going on. But it's notable that Come and See is still on the list. It, it dropped 20 places. It dropped below 100, but it is still kind of on the list. So, yes, this is representative of Russian cinema on the IMDb 250 at the moment. This is carrying the flag, so to speak, for an entire nation cinema. Wow. Um, No pressure. Oh, sorry. Sorry. No, I was going to say, like, that's insane. There are so many just amazing Russian films. I mean, you guys mentioned Tarkovsky. I I think watching Stalker is, is... a bit much, right? Like that's not the place you want to start with, with Tarkovsky. <laughs> um, and, and even something like, like Rublev, you know, three and a half hours long, black and white, it, it kind of leans away from you. I think there are other, like, like Tarkovsky's Sacrifice, right? Everyone sees that as his Bergman film. I think that's a really fantastic place to start with Bergman. Even something like Mirror, which is maybe his most expressionistic turn is, is something that most people should see. So it's really a shame that, that these films have been kind of phased out it it's it makes me sad. It's funny because we liked Bergman, I think, broadly. Well, I certainly did. Like, um and that that's been some one of one of the joys of the um of this project. I guess if we want <laughs> to call never it ending that, project. this never ending yeah. project. This futile project. <laughs> if you're wrong calling it a project. Uh project sounds hopeful somehow. Um, uh, suggests completion it suggests at one stage we will have covered the entire 250 movies yeah yeah, but but one of the joys has been kind of seeing movies that we wouldn't otherwise see even for yourself darren you would you have kind of said that you you would have kind of black spots in your movie knowledge like um, particularly indian cinema in, in particular would be something that i kind of discovered largely through the list because in recent years that is also kind of seen a resurgence of this again largely purged in what happened with the algorithm yeah. yesterday. so and hadhoon is just gone uh, which is a shame which is one of the the coen brothers-esque organ trafficking black comedy indian uh, musical <laughs> that you didn't know you needed um which is great i, I mean the i i read your tweets on 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 that um and i'm kind of curious like 
what are they you mentioned kind of conspiracy theories and this being like um some kind of package of sanctions but they, like obviously that's <laughs> the, not what it is you know they, no. they i mean what what is it though i mean obviously they've changed their algorithm it's not just like jeff bezos has a look at the 250 and it's like um bring back jaws yeah bring back jaws i don't care how you do it i want jaws on the list by the way like uh, the for the list to change and to favor like english language movies and for jaws to come back like how close is robocop to, to getting back on the list that is crazy yeah. that isn't there uh, it it does it does look like they just preferenced uh, English language voters. It looks like they preference American voters. So, for example, it isn't just foreign. Sorry, this is very boring for Lee, and I apologize. This is like very oh. exciting for like the five listeners who care about the IMDb's <laughs> internal ranking. I've got all five. Their, of you. their votes um, uh, count for uh, like almost as much as an English language voter. So, yeah, um, um, but like so. It's not just the non-English language movies that have kind of dropped off and taken a hit. It's also silent cinema, uh, which is, again, something that is very popular in non-English language movies. Uh, sorry, non-English, non-English language um, kind of countries, uh, because obviously silent comedies travel very, very well. Uh, and interestingly, British cinema also took a bit of a tumble, which is fascinating, which is obviously still English language. Bother. So the two month Oh, bo- oh, darn. Oh, gosh, darn. Kicking the necklace. Um, Yes. <laughs> Jolly good show, I do say so myself. But things like the two Monty Python movies on the list took a tumble. They're down six places as well. And things like Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels also took a tumble, which is interesting. Train spotting remains in place. So this is but I, I that's why I do suspect that it's a specifically American that they're specifically weighting American voters rather than just English language voters. Strange. It's because Yeah, it's a very odd thing that nobody cares about, and I'm sorry that this is a tangent upon a tangent. But Let's let's talk a little bit about kind of come and see just just very briefly by way of introduction. Um, it is, I believe, the fifth movie, uh, the fifth and final movie uh, from director uh, Elim Klimov. Um, are you familiar with his work, Lee? Did you kind of seek him out after you saw Come and See, or, or are you kind of familiar with his with his work? I'm so I saw Agony, which is a film that he has since disowned. Um, and I think Agony is is a towering achievement. It has flaws, but it, it's wonderful. I saw The Farewell, the film where he came in to complete his late wife's uh, final film, um, and he had to rework the script because what worked for her didn't work for him. Um, and it was I think that's a fantastic film. But you know, Klimov's final film come and see is is like the defining masterpiece and i can see why he never made anything else like it, it contains everything that you could ever want to say um so oh yeah yeah i mean it like it, it's that's that's it's interesting that you mentioned agony right because because again he's his first two films are apparently notable but not necessarily particularly important so things like no trespassing which was apparently censored because um the granny character was a dead ringer for khrushchev <laughs> then, however, Khrushchev watched the movie and was like, I think this is funny. And the movie got released. Wow. Uh, and then there was like Diary the Adventures of a Dentist, which was blocked by a while by Soviet authorities um, who saw it as being critical of the way that special Soviet artists were treated. Wow. Um, but you, you mentioned kind of agony and agony. And again, like this interesting relationship that you have and with Klimov. And- that, that point about it being blocked by the Russian censors and Khrushchev watching it. Does he just watch movies that have been blocked by the Russian censors? Because it's like they, they, it's 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 like having a special subscription, where you you can watch things that nobody else can watch. Or, or yeah, anyway, just the bucket. Put it in the Khrushchev bucket. It's like yeah, audience of one. You are literally making this audience this for the premiere. Um, 
But apparently, yes, so, so Agony was a movie that, again, as kind of Lee pointed out, made about the final days of the Romanov era, um, took nine years to make, and apparently, um, like, banned in Russia because the pre-Glasnost Soviet authorities, and I'm quoting from an article here, I have not seen the movie, Lee can confirm or deny, balked at the orgies, and what they saw is a sympathetic portrayal of the doomed Tsar. But apparently, like, Agony actually screened overseas. Mm-hmm. It actually screened at international film festivals and in New York City long before it was released for Soviet audiences. Mm-hmm. And then ironically, as you, you point out, you have the the other, the opposite situation happening with Farewell, which is the movie that was begun by his, his uh, wife who passed during production, where it was filmed in Russia and then took almost a decade to get out. But yeah, you, you mentioned Come and See being his last film. And one of the things I find striking about it is that Part of that is apparently like like the standard reason that a movie is a director's last movie, which is he did try to do some other stuff afterwards, but he couldn't get those projects off the ground. So, for example, the year after it was released, there was something of like a coup within the like Soviet uh, cultural ministry and film union, film workers union, where a bunch of young Turks kind of like managed to get people installed like Klimov to try and force um, like Russian cinema to change and to try and get all these bad movies released and Klimov became a part of that movement mm-hmm. and eventually resigned in frustration when he couldn't get it done and he did also try to develop two projects afterwards which never really managed to take off off the ground right. but he has also said exactly what you said there Lee which is I wasn't happy with Agony. I felt like Agony didn't capture everything that I wanted it to do it wasn't a transcendental cinematic experience it didn't move the viewer out of their body but Come and See did, and it basically took the art form as far as I know how to take it. It basically, like, completed my work. At 1967, Klimov stopped making films. He told the New York Times in 2001, After Come and See, I lost interest in making films. Everything that was possible, I felt I had already done. I think of lines written by Andrei Platonov to his wife, Towards the impossible our souls fly. Um, which is pretty good when you're summing up your career yeah. i've done everything it's possible for an artist to do yeah. i'm putting down my brush it's amazing, but didn't ludwig wittgenstein did something like that he kind of um uh, um i think it was it after the tractatus he decided like oh i've solved all the important problems of philosophy like any any remaining problems are just kind of you know uh, beneath me yeah exactly and then would uh, like when went to kind of do other stuff like gardening i think i might be wrong <laughs> <laughs> um all right then so before we jump into the spoilers so before we talk about the movie in a bit more depth just to kick us off so lee do you think Come and See belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Absolutely. I mean, insofar as I'm even, I'm qualified to speak on such a thing, I think that Come and See is important. It, it feels like more than a movie, like pardon me for sounding pretentious, but I, I really do think that it's an important film and it does what so many films think they're doing. And it's it paints war as hell and it truly depicts what violence does to humanity on both sides of of each conflict and and i think that people should see it so for sure yeah i i want to actually maybe it's something to come back to in the spores because i do want to talk about like the anti-war aspect of the movie because it's very frequently compared like the most frequent point of comparison you see whether reading reviews at the time it came out or like contemporary like contemporary reassessments of it uh, is the comparison to something like francis ford coppola's apocalypse now where you arguably have that same sort of hallucinogeny, hallucin- you know, hallucinogenic kind of quality to it, where it feels almost like a waking dream or nightmare. Um, but I think when we talked about Apocalypse Now, 
uh, one of our guests said it's not an anti-war movie. And when we talked about, and that Coppola himself has said, he doesn't feel like Apocalypse Now is an anti-war movie. Come and see, I think, very definitely is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, I, I can talk way more about that in spoilers because I have okay, like, specific cool. okay. examples. All right. Um, and, and Andrew, do you think Come and See belongs on the list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Um, I agree with the, maybe with the, with the argument. I certainly feel that there should be anti-war movies on the 250. The, 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 the kind of the wordiness argument. Um, having said that, and I, I'm 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 looking forward to I guess the spoiler zone and to kind of being persuaded, but for for me, um, I kind of uh, I feel even wrong saying it, but it 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 felt kind of not so much. And and I'm looking forward to discussing it, and and it, it it's probably coming across that I'm reluctant to say it, but it it felt more like a um less of an anti-war movie and more of a movie of kind of um um exercising a kind of a, a national pain or a kind of a wound inflicted by 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 the germans by the nazis and that the, the, this is kind of a um an 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 exploration of that um and 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 that's Obviously, it, 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 um, Lee is quite right. It does show war as hell, but it feels very sort of kind of pointed, as in um, against... Very particular, like this, this war. Yeah, hell, against an, 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 an opponent, which is fair. Obviously, like, like no, nobody's in any um, kind of... <laughs> yeah, it's not a nuanced the subject. Yes. No, um, <laughs> but... Um, uh, but I, 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 I'm, I'm not going to argue too strongly against it being on the two fifty. What, 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 what about you, uh, Darren? Well, I, I think to, to put a pin in that because that's something we're going to discuss. I think that is something that is interesting to talk about with regards to the movie and its kind of place in the Soviet mythology and the, the history of the Second World War and that discussion about whether it is a general anti-war statement or a more specific response to a particular trauma and kind of where, if that influences how you watch and perceive it. I think that's a valid point and we will come back to that. For myself, I, I think this is, yeah, I'm kind of more Team Lee with this one, I think. I think it's a stunningly well-made film. It is like haunting. Um, and again, like I, I, I'm wary of what Lee said, where you're going to fall into the trap of, of using <laughs> these kind of vague descriptions of this movie as if it's some kind of cursed text or it's some kind of, you know, yeah. transcendental experience that you can only describe in those terms. But it is a, a stunningly well-made piece of cinema mm -hmm. um, that I think really impacts and really, really affected me as a viewer. Um, that kind of, again, 250 bingo, the Ebert quote about film being an empathy machine mm -hmm. and the idea of it serving as a window, in particular, the way in which this movie uses the idea of looking and seeing and very much in the title, come and see, taken from the book of Revelation. But the idea that so much of the movie is as focused on the idea of watching atrocity as atrocity actually happening, the idea of witnessing this stuff and being changed, transformed by it. Um, and yeah, I think it is a, a profound anti-war film. I think, yeah, I think uh, particularly now we, we we should probably have more diverse perspectives uh, on the list. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, yeah, Russian cinema is sorely underrated on here. And I think I connected with this better than I connected with Stalker. 
So I, I definitely think that it, it belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made. But Lee, so having watched it on YouTube, having seen the restored print in 2019, having presumably owned the 2020 Blu-ray you mentioned, is Come and See one of your own personal 250 favorite movies? Yes, it's probably closer to my top 10 um, if, it's, oh, wow. if it's not in there already. Like I... I love this movie. I don't know what it says about me personally, but I, I watch it quite a bit um, okay. because I, I think that it, you know, obviously I've, I've said enough about it being an important film, but I also think like aesthetically, this yes. this movie is a film school. You can learn so much about editing, subjective camera movement, everything that people say filmmakers like Barry Jenkins or um, uh, Wong Kar Wai or um, I don't know why I'm forgetting his name, uh, Krzysztof Kieslowski in Poland, everything people say that they do with subjective camera movement, you can apply to come and see directly. And, and the ways in which cinematographically Klimov uses the, the camera, which I'll get more into in, in the spoiler section, are just transformative. And like, I can't put in the words how great it is. So it's obvious. It's, it's definitely in my 250, probably in my top 10. I can make an argument for my top five. Like, I love this movie. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, and Andrew, what about yourself? Um... I, I, I can't argue against any of that, but I, 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 I just, it, um, not for me. The, 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 yeah, it, it didn't, um, it was certainly, uh, it was certainly moving and it was unpleasant. It was, it was, it was, it was kind of like, it was meant to be, you know? Um, but I, 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 I felt, yeah, I've, I've, I, I, at a certain I suppose I suppose we'll 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 talk about it later. It did like the. I don't know whether it was the. Um, I think there were there were there were aspects of it that kind of um, uh, put me off, I guess. Okay. Um, okay, and those are kind of like specific things that we can get into. Yeah, and okay. <laughs> um, it kind of. Um, yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. Sorry, I'm being very vague. Yes. Um, no, no, no. And, well, I mean, if, and... they, if they are specific things, if they're like, if they are things that are, you know, very particular, we can get into that. If it's not a general, yeah. Plus, I, I don't want to. Kind of, I'm, 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 le- I'm least qualified to kind of, um, <laughs> to you know, um, uh, talk, um, talk down this movie, you know. Um, but no, every everything, everything that Lee said is 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 the case um it it just it just didn't kind of it just didn't do it for me and i'm like like i'm looking forward to kind of talking about it more because um like it might be a movie that i rewatch um it's certainly important so um yeah that's my goal now to get you to rewatch it that's it yeah. we've actually entered a debating stage <laughs> and, and for myself if i was if i was with lee on the last question to, to balance the score i'm kind of with andrew on this one where it's like again i don't want to fall into the trap of how hard this is to watch and, and all that because I, I think it is actually i think it's very difficult to watch yeah. i think it's 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 and it should be and and it's good that it is and it doesn't flinch and it's something that is very much to the movie's credit mm-hmm. i am not dinging the movie for this yeah. but it's something where i very selfishly um quite like movies that i enjoy rewatching and movies that i like going back to and movies that i kind of like get into a comfortable rhythm with um and having i watched this movie three times for this podcast i feel like i have maybe seen it enough uh, forever um, and, 
And, you know, I mean, I, I think it's astonishingly well made. I think it's brilliant. I think it should be on the list. Uh, we'll get to a question in a second about whether or not I'd recommend it for listeners. But for myself, it probably wouldn't be on my own personal 250. It wouldn't like when I'm ranking the movies that I want sent to, uh, as Andrew said, Good Movie Island, I think is how Andrew describes this premise. Mm. I don't necessarily want one of those slots going to a movie that I'm going to look at and go, I, probably not tonight. Um, <laughs> I think all right. Fair. So that, that's. That's my answer to the question. So, Lee, if listeners have not seen Come and See, would you recommend that they pause the podcast and stream it to a local device? Oh, absolutely. But the, a word of warning, uh, the first 35 to 45 minutes are some of the most off-putting and uncomfortable things you're going to see. It is you don't have an opportunity to orient yourself. And I think there are specific reasons. So it's filmed in four by three. And a lot of the close-ups yeah. are filmed in portraiture style. And they don't have like what you're used to seeing in a portrait. Like think the Oppenheimer uh, film that's coming up by Nolan, the first film, the first picture that came out, the uh, Killian Murphy picture. That close up is beautiful. It has nice, soft depth of field and the edges are, are really well taken care of. Come and see it doesn't have that at all. You have characters speaking directly to the camera in this really uncomfortable way that doesn't feel like a movie. It feels like they're really close to you. Um, so just be, be wary of that. Also, another really subtle thing is that eye lines don't match. A lot of the film takes place from, um, uh, Fleora's perspective, a young 13 year old boy, and you'll follow his subjectivity to establish a shot. Like he'll look up at a character, but the eye line will be directly in that, in that character's side of view. So it's like the eye lines don't match. Like the, uh, I'll give an example. So early on in the film, Fleora is in a barrel. Uh, like bathing or something in a in, yes. in a camp. Oh, he's cleaning. He's cl- is that where he's cleaning? Yeah, the, yes. yeah. And he can't see over the wood when he's crouched down, but the subjective shot is still observing the world from that point of view. And it's like, wait, whose perspective are we following here? Like, what are we supposed to be? What, what are you conveying? So it's really uncomfortable and it's hard to orient yourself. Also, in that scene when he sees uh, the girl for the first time and he stops looking at her, the camera keeps tracking with her. Like you've, you've established that he stopped looking and it's still following. So it puts you in the mind of, of Fleora. You're not seeing what he's seeing. You're seeing what he's thinking. And that's really uncomfortable. Another example is perhaps the most uncomfortable film scene in the film in the first hour or so happens when he goes back home. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, he doesn't go back home, but he, he goes home for the first time with, with his mom. And she she's talking to him about joining the, the partisans. And she's really upset by this. And the, the close ups are super uncomfortable because you'll establish that he's looking directly at her and the, the camera will be from his point of view. And then you'll back up and see that it's he's somewhere else in the room. Possibly be. And it's, it's just really disorienting, really uncomfortable. I'm probably not explaining this well, but um, no, no, I think you are. Awesome. So so viewers, just beware that the first act is really off putting. It's you're not going to it's unlike anything else you've ever seen. It, it's kind of like the, the warning you give to someone before they go into a Tarkovsky film. Like you, you think you know what a slow movie is <laughs> until <laughs> until you're staring at a, a, a scene of seaweed for five minutes. Right. Like it's, this is something else. So just <laughs> go in knowing that the first 35 to 45 minutes are completely uncomfortable and then things blow up and then they just turn into complete nightmare fuel. So. Yeah, but absolutely pause this and go watch it. It's on the Criterion channel. Kind of regret now that we didn't have Leon to talk about Stalker. Um, I feel, like, <laughs> I feel like, like Lee might have oriented myself and Andrew much better going into Stalker. Um, but Andrew, what about yourself? Would you recommend that listeners pause the podcast and stream it to a local device? Um, yeah, per, per, 
Perhaps. I mean, we said with Stalker that kind of, um, I, as far as I recall, Tarkovsky had kind of spoken about the um, level of boredom that he was kind of aiming for <laughs> with his movies and to, to, to bore people like into submission, but beyond that. that, that is, <laughs> it's like going beyond boredom. You end up at a, like a, a spiritual awareness. I think yeah. Is how Tarkovsky it's described kind of, it. The, it's a, <laughs> um, an interesting approach to, 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 to cinema. And this is kind of, I guess, kind of in, in some ways in that school, in terms of like all of the things that, that, that Lee said, and sorry to be parroting you, but yeah, that it's disorientating that it's kind of alienating, it's off-putting, uncomfortable, and then it becomes horrific. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, that, I, I, I think um, the world can do with kind of a reminder of, of the horrors of war. Particularly right now, yeah. As if it doesn't have enough kind of um, at the moment. But but in case there's, there's, there, there, there are people kind of beating the drum and kind of, I know considering things that we never never would have in in yeah. in Ireland and in the the European Union and I, I mean not to date the podcast too much but in 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 Germany and that there's a kind of a a um and perhaps understandable sort of growing militarism uh, if that's not too strong a word to put for to it but the that these kind of movies are good reminders as if they were required and because they are of how horrific war is and can be and will be um so yeah i i i i guess i'd recommend it for that reason and i'm glad um i i i watched it so um yeah i'd i'd i'd, I'd maybe want to to share that kind of experience with our, with our with our listeners if they have the opportunity as lee says it's on criterion and i think other than that you're kind of the for for I guess for non-American um, uh, listeners who, who who don't have the means that it are easily <laughs> um, um, looked into, um, yeah, you, you might be out of luck. But but do do give it a go if you can. What about you, Darren? And for myself, again, I kind of sit between the, appropriately enough between the two of you on this, uh, where. I was quite surprised and maybe it's the film's reputation and maybe it's the fact that I did literally have people say that they never want to watch it again. It's a masterpiece. But I was going into this expecting the movie to be a nightmare from beginning to end. And what I want to say just just before we talk about it with spoilers to Lee's comment at the, at the start there, it is the opening 45 minutes are disorienting and they do throw you off balance and they feel unusual, but they feel... There, it's not entirely nightmarish. It is right. at times almost dreamlike. Um, and I was quite surprised in the opening 45 minutes. I mean, there is always a sense of dread. Yeah. This movie is never ambiguous <laughs> about where it's going. Right. Um, it opens with this kind of Shakespearean-esque kind of like preamble prologue poetry section which yeah. is just like in case you don't get where this movie is going to go before the title appears, this is where it's going to go. But in the that opening hour, those 45 minutes stretch, I was kind of enchanted by how weirdly beautiful it could be 
um, shots of things like I'm thinking of, like there's a shot with a female character in with a rainbow mm-hmm. uh, in the background. Um, the long takes that you get the the the, the basically the flip side the effect that Lee mentioned of kind of like holding shots from perspectives for a long while and then moving them in ways that make you realize that you're not inside someone's eye you're more inside their head um and that kind of lending it a way of kind of feeling very weird but also kind of magical at least in those opening stretches and then there's a point where where it just kind of flips and it's like no you are you're in a nightmare and you're going to stay there for the next two hours and somehow it's going to get worse but yeah i i would wholeheartedly recommend it i do think that maybe there are some people who don't necessarily need this right now. I feel like it might be a bit much. And if it sounds like it's a bit much, it probably is a bit much. But if you are at all interested, if you are at all curious, if you have any curiosity about this, um, I would wholeheartedly recommend it. I, I think it is. And again, that that the two angles we seem to be coming at this, which is A, it's a hugely important film, uh, which it is. It's saying something that is very profound and something very moving. And B, it is a beautifully made piece of cinema. Just as a, as a as a piece of art, it is stunningly well put together. So yeah, uh, I would I would recommend it. Uh, with that in mind, then we will segue neatly into the spoiler zone. So Lee, mm-hmm. what is Come and See about for you? So for me, you know, obviously, like on a, on a narrative level, it's about the Belarusian genocide where the Nazis burned down 628 villages to the ground, um, where one in four Belarusians perished, women, children and men. Um, that is a staggering figure. Um, and, you know, that's when you're depicting something like that. You know, it, that's enough in and of itself. Right. There's a documentary. I'm forgetting the title of it, but it's a uh, it, it's kind of like Shoah, where Shoah is a nine hour testimonial documentary about the, the Holocaust. This is about the Belarusian genocide and where Shoah has a, a book to run parallel with it. This one has one. And I know the book is called Out of the Fire. And it was co-authored by the guy whose name I can't pronounce, who uh, worked on the script for uh, for Come and See. Um, So that's what the film is on a narrative level. But I think thematically what it's dealing with is what this hellish violence does to humanity. And some of that is indicative in the the film's original working title, which was Kill Hitler. Um, Klimov said that, you know, Kill Hitler obviously was a reference to killing Hitler, but it was also a reference to killing the, the Hitler within. He was convinced that this fascistic threat did not die with a single being, that it this was a mentality that that could go on. And when Come and See was was released, they were at the height of the Cold War. And he talked about like how, you know, we depicted the social catastrophe of the 20th century and we were on the brink of something far worse. So we felt like this was a rallying cry to kind of show people what this violence can do. 
and you know I, and forgive me i'm, I'm gonna ramble here because i didn't write this stuff no down, absolutely but, no absolutely ramble away <laughs> but with with what this does to humanity in in the story of uh in in the main character 13 year old boy i think specifically about the barn scene which was the hardest scene for him to film when you think about that that is insane we know anything about the production where they're firing real live tracer bullets right over yeah, his head over the head uh yeah. real explosives uh a cow gets murdered right in front of him yeah. almost killed several crew members uh the, the cow falling over the hardest thing for him to shoot was the the barn scene because those extras lived through the actual genocide and they were descendants of the people who lived through the genocide. So the way Klimov put it, they were tapping into genetic coding that understood what the situation was. So when Fleora is in that situation, he's not acting. That is not a performance. He is genuinely terrified. And the reason I bring that up in, in reference to what this does to the human spirit is because those Nazis say, if you want to survive, leave the children behind. So he has to literally like leave his childhood in that barn to burn. And if you pay attention to his face, he ages several decades when he leaves that that barn. There like wrinkles begin appearing on his face and it starts taking a toll on him. And, you know, we, we know what it does to uh, to the girl. I think the less said about that, the better. Um, it's that's a hor- horrific way to, to go for, for her. Um, and then you see what this violence does to the Nazis. They do not have anything inside, inside of them that's recognizably human. In this scene in particular, in, in the barn burning scene, the close up of the close ups of them are absolutely horrifying. They they're happy about what's happening. They're laughing. They're, they're reveling in the sorrow. Some of them are are eating seafood as this is happening. Some people are playing with little exotic pets and, and not paying attention to what's happening at all because they, they just can't be bothered to care. This is business as usual for them. And I think where this, this point really comes in, into a place of like unambiguous, just you, you have to face it is at the very end where Fleur raises his gun for the first time and fires it at a picture of Hitler. So this is one of the most like poetic visual symbols that the film has to offer. And it's, Fleur standing over this this picture of Hitler that says Hitler the Liberator, and his shadow is is reflected in this image. His I think that's very deliberate. His shadow is in Hitler, right? And he fires the first shot. And if you pay attention to his shadow, Hitler's face disappears, and it looks like with with the mud that his shadow is bleeding, and he's he's killing this image of himself. And you see footage get reversed. Yeah. And, you know, you, you end on a picture of Hitler as a baby and Fleora can't fire the final shot. And I, I think one of the most deliberate choices in that sequence is you start on a close up of Hitler's mother and it pans down to Hitler as a baby. And I think Fleora starts to recognize the humanity in what would eventually become Hitler. So you see these layers of monstrosity that become unrecognizable. And I think that's one of the most bold choices I've ever seen in a piece of cinema. To, to attempt to go, even if you have to go all, as, as far back as a baby picture to see the humanity, to try to locate that humanity and say, this is what the worst of us can become, but all of us have the capacity to become this. Uh, it, it's, it's beautiful for me. So I, I think that's the main thing I love about the film is what this type of violence can do to humanity on, on both sides of the conflict. I hope that all made sense. No, it, no, does. it does. It does. Yeah. And the, 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 it's, it, 
it beautifully kind of contextualizes that scene because it's certainly arresting, but you're kind of um, what's jarring compared to what came before because yeah. you're getting the incorporation of newsreel footage into into this. It's it's very much the intrusion of like rea- reality and what you what how we frame right. the historical memory of the Second World War because everybody has seen the newsreel footage. We know the black and white. We know the sounds that are being used. And as opposed to the movie to this point has been very, as you point out, subjective, very much kind of like placed in a position where we're watching this stuff in a kind of a trance state mm-hmm. to have the intrusion of, oh no, this is actual documentary footage right. of the camps. Right. This right. is historical footage of Hitler. Right. It's, it's a, it is a jarring transition, I think. And it, yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of, it it is it is jarring and it it's um it's arresting as I say but it, it, it I I suppose it's good to I think the way you've contextualized it is quite good because it, it can be it can be difficult to know what to make of it because right. it feels so kind of um uh, there's there's so much rage there yes and it's it's it 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 like like a naive interpretation probably the way the, way, the like watching it i was feeling like he was killing like every part of hitler right and um you know like, like um like shooting him once wouldn't 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 be enough right. and 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 that um uh, can you kill someone enough that they had, that they had never existed right. um but the, 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 i i much prefer your um uh, interpretation because it, it it it's yeah no that's beautiful and, it, and you mentioned the kind of the, the inclusion of hitler's mother like that was actually a composite shot that photo doesn't exist that photo had to be constructed specifically for the movie they mm-hmm. had to piece it together from a photo of hitler's mother and a photo of hitler as a child so that's a very deliberate choice mm-hmm. that the camera like has to pan down from the mother to the child and like didn't we mention sorry. wittgenstein earlier i think they, they 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 were in the same class weren't they um, I do not know. Do I need to go to the fact machine? Do you want to go to the fact machine? I, this is kind. Of, it kind of feels like a a, a pointless use of the fact machine, but <laughs> but I, I I do I do believe that they they. Um, All right, we're gonna we're gonna blow the dust off and wheel the fact they, machine. <laughs> they were they were I think in school together. Yes, yes, they were. And we're back from the fact machine. There, there is a class photograph of uh, uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein and Adolf Hitler. Wow! In um in the in the in the same class together, there's like in this, in Austria. This is like the very dark version of what we talked about with modern times, where it's like Charlie Chaplin like palling around with Churchill and Gandhi and uh, you know various yeah. other figures. It looks like there's about like forty or so kids in that class, um, and and one of them is uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein, and the other is Adolf Hitler. Um, but yeah, anyway, sorry. Um, but to, to bring it back to something that you said there, which I think is kind of like the nub of of the movie for me anyway, watching it is the 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 emphasis. Hitler looked like a wrong one even then. Um, by the way, <laughs> all all of the hot takes on yeah, the two fifty. Yeah. Um, but like to bring it back to something that Lee said there, just in terms of like kids and in terms of because the movie is very preoccupied with childhood. It's very preoccupied with innocence. It's very preoccupied with the idea of war destroying childhood and destroying innocence, whether literally or figuratively. You have it the introduction of like the child in the Nazi uniform who gives you that kind of Shakespearean soliloquy, which is I am a Nazi. I am evil. Mm-hmm. I am going to destroy absolutely everything, um, which is very much like, yeah, so you know what you're in for for the rest of the movie. You have kids playing in the sand discovering and digging up guns you have things like even small shots like you know flora kind of like walking through the woods breaking an egg under his shoe Mm -hmm. 
very much, again, very potent, very symbolic. And as you point out, things like the idea of, you know, leave the children behind and you will survive. And the idea of what the, the line that the, the German says when he's completely unapologetic um, at the end, when he's kind of captured, when he's like, yeah, it always starts with the children. And the idea that you have just this loss of a generation, whether literally in the sense of like Dora's sisters are dead um, and countless other children are dead and will never get to grow up or figuratively where it's like Flora is 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 dead inside or the child that was Flora is dead right. his his hair as you point out is gray his skin is wrinkled um over the course of maybe two days if even the course of this movie yeah. makeup um, in this which movie is, is incredible actually it's amazing i kind of wanted to point that that that, that out and it, it, like a lot of the special effects makeup for the for the kind of gore um as well i thought it was incredible yeah, yeah. Sometimes you watch a very powerful movie like this, but they've, um, but a, so, some something kind of not quite looking right can kind of take you out of it. This felt very um, real, I guess. And a lot of it obviously done in shot as well. Like it, it, the way that it's shot, it uses long takes, so you can't cut disguise I, these things which is particularly impressive i should say probably too real like i don't think health and safety <laughs> was a very good when you're killing cows and firing live rounds into the air to get the performance and you want out I of actors yeah. that aspect of it kind of bummed me out because it was kind That's of right. like the the the, the, the <laughs> like the idea of this kind of like machine um which is kind of like making a movie and it doesn't matter kind of like the 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 the, uh, the lives kind of involved uh, that that they're kind of like a means to an end, mm-hmm. um, and it was a very difficult movie for for like a lot of the heard like a story, um, the the actor who played Fiora and it it, it was it, like his first um, movie and he had kind of like been cast it was it was it was the um, um, it was that classic thing of going to a, a an audition. Um, as moral support for a friend and being so cast. Like the, how Mel Gibson ended up in Mad Max kind of thing. Exactly. Or, um, or, or um, um, yes. <laughs> Sorry, I was going <laughs> to give the example of, um, of, of, of Milhouse. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Like Mel Gibson or Milhouse Van Houten, the Milhouse, two great yeah, titans yeah. of our Sorry. time. Sorry, um, it just felt inappropriate. Sorry. Um, but he tells of having to kind of wade through that kind of mud yeah. ganache and how he had been given like the special uh, kind of a, a, a wetsuit that was to pr- pr- protect him from like waterborne viruses and... Mm. Um, the director felt that he wasn't getting like the, the, enough of a performance out of him. It would be better like like if 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 he can really feel like how horrible and dangerous this is. <laughs> um, oh so yeah, yeah, it did it, it did it without the um, without the 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 the, the wetsuits. It's a, like just, anyway, it it it. it that, that sort it's, of it's stuff. a fair comment. Like it, it is a thing that we kind of grapple with on the podcast where we're talking about things like, say, Kubrick, for example, mm-hmm. and the mistreatment of actors. And I like, and you know, we again, Apocalypse Now also has a bull that is killed live on on screen and that sort of thing. And the tendency to fetishize that as an example of like how intense the production is, or how mm-hmm. true or how real the resulting movie is, and to perhaps 
negate or kind of downplay the actual like suffering of everybody on that set yeah perhaps you know i I think that's a very fair and very valid point and it's kind of yeah it's this whole idea that like you know um treating people well and by by the way i should say that fiora the 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 actor who played him seemed like he was very alexi kravchenko yes yeah he, he's, he's very proud of the work that he did. Exactly. Like it's, it's not, he's, that he d- he's he doesn't not, he, talk about it as like this um, thing that he had to endure. He 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 was he was very on board. It sounds like, but it, but yeah, it, it, just this idea that that it's, you know looking after people or um, caring about their safety would be a compromise too much. Um, yeah, too far. I, guess. I just uh, I want to say, like for the record, I, I think that a lot of this stuff was just unnecessary. Um, like if, <laughs> if you're gonna like kill a cow, maybe don't do it in camera, or or just don't kill it at all. You can just tranquilize it, and we can do without right. live tracer rounds that weren't even around in that conflict. Like it can be completely dark, and we can hear gunshots and understand what's happening. We don't need live tracer rounds in camera flying over the head of a child. We just don't need that. Um, and, you know, so I'm, I'm not one of those people that thinks like the harder a production, the better a film. Um, if I'm right. ever on set and, and I see like abuse, I'm just I'm, I'm going to leave. I don't want to be a part of anything like that. So I just want to be really clear about that. Those are not the things I, I admire about the <laughs> no, film. No. <laughs> well played, Andrew. Well played. Um. <laughs> now we've got him on the defensive. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> We all know that Heaven's Gate is a masterpiece, right? Um, <laughs> but, but like, no, no, no. and like, I, I, yeah, I know that's a very, very valid point to make about about the movie. And I guess let let's front load the potential criticisms of the movie then, and then we can get back to talking right. about it as a masterpiece. All the gurning. Um, um, okay, I love that Andrew's like, I love that it's like, okay, I'm in. <laughs> like, all the gurning and gawking and kind of, um, yeah, just is still kind of like um, uh, lingering on um, reactions. Is that sure? Yeah, yeah, just making okay. faces. And I, 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 I was just kind mm. of um, after it kind of starts and. I suppose it is that thing. It's like, how long is this going to go on for? <laughs> that Tarkovsky-esque um, zone that you're in, is it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and I, 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 like you, you, you kind of just one, one ought to sort of um, if they're going to enjoy this movie, um, and maybe enjoy is isn't the right word, but if they're going, to, if you're going to appreciate this movie, you maybe have to find a way of kind of parking those reservations if you have them, which I had, which is kind of like, it's, and like the, the, the stuff like the, the, the warping of, of voices. It, um, like I, I, it, obviously it's, you can tell what it's doing and it's kind of doing a good job of it. But, um, yeah, I, I was just kind of, um, Obviously not enjoying it, but but also kind of <laughs> not just, responding uh, or not engaging with it. Yeah, not it? yeah, get, getting yeah. like immediately tired of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess. Uh, so yeah, sorry, yeah, and and I'll 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 stop. There. No, no, no. Like, <laughs> it, it, it's a valid point to bring up, and it's it's worth kind of engaging yeah. with. I just uh, before I hand over to Lee, I will say I actually quite enjoyed that level of kind of intense closeness. Uh, it, well, Okay. Well, like all the wailing and uh, wailing, crying, laughing, kind of like just kind of, um, 
Yeah, where 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 people are kind of reduced to like reaction shots, um, is it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um I guess the, the the I didn't like the kind of um the romance of the the um this uh, rabble in the forest kind of um, I thought that worked well in terms of setting up what was to come. I think I like I think that it works well that like Florian is immediately like he's excited by the prospect of war. He spends most of the first like that's the thing with the first 45 minutes that I kind of mentioned being right. caught off guard with is the idea of how like weirdly beautiful and kind of almost romantic they are even as you're aware that this is going to end badly. Mm-hmm. Like the amount of the the first 45 minutes Florian spends kind of like grinning and smiling and being kind of thrilled that he's being swept up in this boyish adventure. So like yeah. when I mean even that to be clear is uncomfortable. Yeah. Like it, it, and I think yeah. it should be, and I think it's meant to be. Like when, when, when he's bundled yeah, when, away by the big he's... burly guy and thrown in the back of the cart as they're driving away, and the little kid's yeah. trying to see him, and the mother's trying to separate him. But you can see he's smiling to himself, or the bit where they're taking yep. the photo, and it's like, look at this guy in his nice suit jacket. And again, like to mm-hmm. Lee's point, it's a bigger suit jacket than he is, so it looks like, it makes it right. look particularly childish. Uh, but he's smiling right. and grinning, because he's like, yeah, this is exactly what war's meant to be, right? I'm going to go, and I'm going to become a man. I I kind of I thought that stuff worked relatively well for me anyway. I th- like I found it I found it disconcerting. I found it weird, and I found it kind of tragic. Oh yeah, yeah. No, like like I don't disagree with you in in terms of it being dis- disconcerting and weird. Certainly, it just it, I, I I don't think it struck the right tone okay. with me. It, it it wasn't as affecting as it ought to have been, and I could see kind of like what it was doing, I guess. But it it just wasn't <laughs> getting through to me somehow. I don't know. It, it it was also kind of coming across like if, is, is somewhat kind of um, you know and, and as as much a philistine as I'm being like it 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 all seemed like kind of ridiculous art house nonsense. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, uh, sorry. Um, just pull the band-aid off um yeah Yeah, right like exactly yeah no i'm sorry i can i can see that though like you know i'm you know i've been glowing about this film and it's it's one of my favorites but i can totally see that right like if you if if you cut to a just uncontextualized shot of a little boy on all fours barking directly into the camera it's like what what's happening (laughs) like what am i supposed to be feeling and and to, to be clear maybe and I don't know enough about Soviet cinema to say this, but maybe that's just a quirk of, of their cinema. Like I'm thinking about Hard to Be a God, like yeah, like films like that, that where like you you watch like what am I supposed to be? What, what's happening? <laughs> like <laughs> like who, who's talking? Even, even the way that the films are mixed, like every voice is at the front of the track. It's like wait. Where where are they in the room and why are they directly in my ear right now? Like I don't know who's talking to it. I, I totally get what you're saying because the first time I watched it and like in his, all of his glory in a the theater, I was really off put by it. I'm like, wait, why is he barking at me? And this is it's really <laughs> uncomfortable. Like, so yeah, I, I I get that. Yeah, no, it, it's kind of like um, and I admire it in a way because the the, the but it it the the idea of a kind of an artist being it's kind of alien to us in the in 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 the west if we want to say that of of being so the 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 idea of kind of pleasing the audience or kind of like holding their hand rather than <laughs> feeling so hostile yeah. yeah 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 exactly <laughs> feeling actively um, resentful of the audience's like desire yeah, to come on board of, it's like 
yeah. admire the kind of artistic courage that that takes. Like, where there's yeah. stuff that I like that other people don't like, and I and and I'm like, yeah, other movies should be like that. <laughs> but like, nobody would watch movies if they were, you know. No, I, I, yeah. I get that. I mean, I I do think to the like the the the, and this is probably a nice segue to talk about like the intense close-ups and stuff like that, because mm. um, I feel like that's what we're on now. I have. When when I was setting up the springboard of let's let's front load the possible complaints or criticisms, I was going somewhere else, but I do appreciate you jumping on that, Andrew. Um, but oh, but the the use of framing and the composition here and the way in which it keeps the camera very close to faces, like the opening shot puts you behind a character's head, so it's very much like okay, you are almost seeing it from their perspective. You're not actually seeing it from their perspective, but you're almost or you're just off center of it. The amount of time characters like just spend barreling the camera and talking directly to the camera um is a moment where like glasha is like staring at floria it's a really disconcerting long shot and she's having this conversation about how you think you're alive but you're not alive i'm alive and it really right. feels like as andrew said the filmmaker kind of barreling the audience directly and being like are you uncomfortable you should be uncomfortable you should feel more uncomfortable <laughs> even though nothing actually graphic or violent and horrible is happening yet you should still feel your skin crawling which i, I kind I'm, of admire yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I, w- I will say in that it it's it's um I did find that kind of out, out out of a lot of the kind of scenes I found that affecting that particular part where she's kind of saying I exist. Yeah. Here I am. Cuz what it did it felt like it was kind of reaching out of the screen and saying yeah. like um is this is not just a movie. Yes. These are like human beings who who suffered through this yeah and and making um, it real and, and like acknowledging that yeah. like witnessing this or bearing witness to this is is almost an obligation at the risk of sounding self-important but the idea of acknowledging atrocity is important yeah. the idea of not yeah. forgetting it the idea of not erasing it and the idea of not reducing the characters to statistics at the risk of like again soviet cliches but the idea mm-hmm. of acknowledging that these are lives that were lived rather than just deaths that happened uh, and i think that's that's very effective and i think it's yeah, something that i really respond to sorry lee no no worries i think one of the things to note about that in particular is is right before that super extreme close-up that by the way doesn't match the eye line at all he's not tall enough to look her directly in the eyes like that i don't yeah. think i could be wrong but it, it doesn't seem to match mm. um I, I think it's important to note that right before that you get this very strange and uncomfortable laughter shared between them where he pours yeah. water yeah. out of a shoe and he's like crying and then he starts laughing uncontrollably and it's like what am i supposed to be feeling in this moment and it's actually mm. more horrifying on a rewatch or uh, uncomfortable i should say like we you know what everything is building towards just like oh my god these these kids just don't understand what's about to happen to them and and these really strange moments just get more uncomfortable i find myself shifting in my seat more and more the more we watch it and and like i think and like this is a weird thing to say about a movie that we've already talked about being really graphic and really horrifying and not afraid and unflinching in its portrayal of like atrocity and horror Um, Because, like, the final 40 minutes of this movie are one of the most harrowing things I think I've seen in cinema. Um, And primarily the reason why I'll never, don't ever want to watch this again. Um, (laughs) But it's, despite that, the emphasis on faces and close-ups I find interesting because it, and again, this is maybe something that I've read, like, Jay Hoberman talk about. um, I've read, uh, like, David Ehrlich talk about and stuff like that. But the idea of capturing atrocity uh, and capturing horror 
in a way that doesn't feel exploitive or voyeuristic, where we spend as much time watching Florian react to the horror around him as we do actually witnessing the horror firsthand. Uh, I think Hoberman describes it as showing the Gorgon reflected in Percy's shield. Um, and I think it's a very clever directorial choice. I think it's a very effective framing and composition choice. I think it's maybe part of what makes the movie so powerful. Is that fair to suggest? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Which, you know, when I when I talk about this film and I compare it to other like narrative pieces of, of cinema, I often think about 12 Years a Slave because 12 Years a Slave does the same thing where the worst of it is happening right off screen. You don't actually see a lot of the worst violence, save for like the third act. The the whipping of Lupita's character at the very end is, is horrific. But come and see, you don't actually see some of the worst things happen to people. There is not a single shot from inside the barn once it goes up in flames. Everything is handled by sound design and you're seeing um, the, the reactions to it. And I think a, a part of what makes that scene in particular so upsetting is you see the the jovial responses from the yeah. Nazis. They There is a complete lack of empathy there. They're doing what they think is, is not only right, but should be done, right? They're, they're, they're reveling in this. And I think that makes it more horrifying and, and absolutely horrific. And we spend time with these villagers before that happens. We, we go inside of their homes and you, you see the, the, just the, the horror that they have uh, amongst when like you see how they behave one way and then you see how they behave when the Nazi generals enter their homes. It, it's a completely different thing. And yeah, so, you know, I don't, I don't know if I'm addressing what you said directly, but a, a lot of what's, what's happening is conveyed the reaction and consequence as opposed to just being in it because, you know, I, you know, Truffaut had a quote that like yeah. every war film is a pro war film. And I think a lot of that has to do with film aesthetics being in, inherently seductive. You, you convey scale, but can you convey scale without conveying spectacle? Right. Like, can you show me a 70 millimeter frame of a battlefield with all of these extras without that doesn't look beautiful in some one... way? Exactly. Exactly. And and I, I'm not smart enough to talk about the ethics of such a thing, but I, I think that that's worth discussing for people who are qualified to have the conversation um, and, and come and see just doesn't fall into that at all. So. And I mean, it's, it's notable that like during that sequence with the villagers uh, where they're building to the horrible thing that happens in the barn, you have like the moment where the Nazi kind of grabs Florian and he says, what are you staring at? Stop staring. Because like, right. the act of looking is is, is kind of almost emo- enough of itself. Um, just while we're kind of front loading kind of potential criticisms of the movie, um, just to bring it back to something Andrew said, because I do think this is something that is is worth talking about. The question of like whether this is a specific response to a particular um, situation um, in that it like it's very specifically a movie about what happened in Belarus in, you know, at, towards the end of the Second World War. Again, it was a movie that was commi- that was commissioned leading up, I think, to the 40th anniversary as part of that. Um, and the fact that it does in some ways kind of service uh, national myths or it's been suggested that it serves nationalist myths and and. Uh, and again, I am not smart enough to to comment on this. I'm going to quote from people who presumably are. Uh, Mark Lefanu, who wrote a really good essay uh, for Criterion, uh, Come and See Orphans of the Storm. And like myself, he's somebody who very much respects the movie. <clears throat> he's somebody who knows much more about the movie in its context than I do. Uh, but he makes the point that you can argue that while the Soviet authorities dragged their feet in making this movie, while um, Klemov had to like convince them to let him make this movie, you you can see why the Soviet film board would have signed off on it. Um, in particular, 
he kind of mentions the idea um, that the the atrocity here takes place in a village named Katen. Um, and the idea was that, like, during the 70s and into the 80s, you had the Polish government, like, rising up and making points about the atrocities that the Soviets had committed at Katen, at a different village with a similar sounding name. And the idea, so having this atrocity at a similarly named Russian village uh, in public consciousness served a political purpose in terms of Soviet propaganda. Um, you have things like uh, something that is arguably uh, frustratingly and perhaps worryingly uh, relevant today, where not only is this about how how evil the Nazis are, and, and there's, there's going to be, if you are at all interested, read the show notes. There are some really great pieces written by some very smart people about the history of Soviet cinema and the idea, uh, and, you know, maybe we can talk about this later, maybe we can't, that, you know, American cinema in the 80s was absolutely obsessed with the Soviet Union as a threat uh, in movies like, for example, like Rocky IV, uh, in movies like Rambo, like <laughs> Red Dawn. Red Dawn like a, kind of... Yeah, American cinema was obsessed with the idea of the Soviet Union as the ultimate enemy. But you look at Soviet cinema <clears throat> and I think like I think is it, is it the Frankenheimer um, at one point, like they, they had a big meeting with Soviet filmmakers in like 87 where they filmed a bunch of American movies about Russia and Russian movies about America. And I think the American directors were like, yeah, we, we out stereotyped you. Um, we, we, we were much crasser in our portrayal of you than you were of us. And, and the, the argument is that like Soviet cinema wasn't interested in caricaturing or engaging with the West, with capitalism, with liberal democracy. It was more interested in drawing on the horrors and atrocities of the Nazis because a key part of like Russia's nationalist myth coming out of the Second World War was we defeated the Nazis. We took the brunt. Mm -hmm. Many more of us died and suffered for this. We got to Berlin first, that sort of thing. Um, the idea that, you know, this is, this is important and this is, is kind of vitally important and a unifying theme. And the idea that here you have not only the Nazis, but you also have the collaborators. Um, and in particular, um, it's heavily implied that the collaborators here are Ukrainians, um, the Ukrainian auxiliary police um, who made up the the bulk of the Schwarzmannschaft Battalion 1118, which was responsible for the massacre um, kind of portrayed uh, in the film. And like this was a potent issue in like Soviet in the Soviet Union in the 80s um, when the film like the film apparently stoked up sentiment and encouraged the public prosecution of several Ukrainian members of Battalion 118, uh, in particular Horioi uh, Vasiera, um, who had been awarded a Veteran of Labor Medal as recently as 1984, um, but was mm. like convicted for war crimes in 1986, a year after the movie was released. And the idea that it plays into this, this kind of, again, this this very Soviet, very patriotic, very nationalist myth, where you you now have Putin going on TV and making to be clear, completely unjustifiable, completely fabricated uh, propagandist claims about wanting to denazify uh, the Ukraine. And so it, it... I mean, some, yeah, sorry. some kind of comments about that we kind of heard lately is that that there there is a tendency with Putin and with other Russians to just call anyone against them. A Nazi. Yeah. A Nazi. Yeah. And that it, it's, it's, it's like a liberal use of it because it seemed like, it, and it is, the most ridiculous 
kind of um, word to use when it, it's the, the the president and prime minister are both Jewish. It's it, insulting. And when, when you're offensive. bombing like yeah. Holocaust memorials in the country, to be clear. Yeah. yeah. But no, the, see, seemingly it's kind of lost all meaning. Um, but I, just sorry. just to bring up like Andrew's point, there is there is something there. I think that even people who kind of defend and acknowledge and, and love the film would acknowledge that there is a certain patriotism underpinning the, the kind of the anti-war element here, perhaps. Absolutely. Yeah, which is dangerous because then it, it kind of undermines its ef- effectiveness as an anti-war movie. If you have that kind of, um, if, if, if it stokes that feeling of kind of, you know, needing to settle scores, I guess. Um, I, I agree with that 100%. It's a very dangerous thing. Um, I don't have a counter to something like okay. that because it's, you know, it's way over my head. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's a valid concern and yeah, I don't have much to add. So, sorry. So, so Grant, so, um, <laughs> so having, having acknowledged that though, I, I do think that like, I think that maybe the film's dreamlike quality perhaps lends it a kind of a universality. As you pointed out, one of the things that yeah. Klimov talked about was like the idea that he was making this in the mid eighties where the threat was, yeah. you know, arguably then nuclear holocaust the assumption was like and again darren says arrogantly in the year 2022 the idea of a land war in in europe seemed absurd it was clearly going to be nuclear annihilation nuclear holocaust but like that was sorry yeah no um i forget the particular incident but it it was during the the reagan president presidency that they were getting especially worried and they were convinced like their intelligence were telling them that the the next um, exercise that the um, that the United States uh, did wouldn't be a uh, a test that it would be um, real kind of uh, shooting war where they they would they would use the next scheduled exercise to as a pretense um, to no that, that, yeah that, that, not not and... not not as a pretense as, as a kind of a subterfuge but that that yeah. that, that they that they'd um, Oh, yeah, sure. Sorry, a pretense. Terrifying. Um, um, yeah, and 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 that's um, that it would they 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 wage nuclear war, um, and it, it's yeah it the, the, the I, I feel terrified these days. Yeah, um, it's, 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 sorry, sorry. Like... No, it's it's horrific. Um, I'm wondering just about those you know those those ideas of patriotism and nationalism. Um. I wonder if the ending where they they kill the the perpetrators of that specific um, execution kind mm. of disrupts that a little bit because it's not there. There's no glory there. You don't get the the, the yeah. traditional Narcissus. film music. They don't set them on fire. It's a just a quick. Uh, they just kill them, and you don't see that happen. You you see them firing the the shots. Um, I wonder if that's there, but I mean, the, the counter argument still stands, right? Because they're, they're not the monsters. They don't get the exact revenge. They don't set them on fire. It's not 100% one-to-one absolution. No. So, you know, I think both sides are, are completely valid, but one of the things that I like about it, you know, from my naive American point of view is that, you know, they, they just get it over with. It, it's not this sensational thing. You don't get the traditional Hollywood smoltz. And one thing I, I will mention um, just about the end specifically, uh, I, I mentioned to you before we started recording, Darren, that I did the uh, Sydney Portier uh, retrospective at a local theater. And one of the things we talked about in a frustrating way was what James Baldwin called the fade out kiss, where a, a film will give you this fade out kiss that doesn't have to convey like 
you know, romance or anything sexual. It's all about reconciliation. So in, at the end of the in, in the heat of the night, you get this police officer who's been racist the entire film um, and his his black uh, friend, quote unquote friend. And he, you know, he tells them, take care. And they both smile. And that's the end of the movie. You're, you're supposed to believe that everything is OK. Right. I think that come and see avoids a situation like that. It's not it's not glorified. Like the ending is, is probably the most terrifying thing about it. They're, they're walking through the forest and before the, the actual diegetic ending of the film, you get this cut to text that tells you exactly what actually happened. And then it cuts yeah. back to them walking through the forest and it, it goes through these trees in a steady cam the shot. The camera loses them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The camera seems to lose them for a little while in the wilderness. Exactly. Right? And, and then you come back to them and it's like snowing and you know, it, Obviously, it's you know, they're just in a different place. Like it's, it's the same continuity, but I, th- I think what it implies is that they're marching in, in perpetuity. That the the threat is not gone, um, and and there is no no fade out kiss, no no promise of reconciliation. Everything is not okay, um, and and that's one of the things I, I really like about it. But I think those criticisms are, are definitely valid, especially today. I mean, it's notable that the film does use the uh, Mozart's kind of Requiem in D minor there. And there's a really interesting quote from Ebert where he kind of sums up like what he makes of the use of that kind of piece of classical music, which very much juxtaposes with a film that has been so brutal and harsh to that point. And he says, you know, there's a curious scene here in a wood with the sun falling down through the leaves when the soundtrack, which has been grim and mournful, suddenly breaks free into Mozart. And what does this signify? A fantasy, I believe, and not Floria's, who has probably never heard such music. The Mozart descends into the film like a deus ex machina to lift us from despair. We can accept it if we want, but it changes nothing. It's like an ironic taunt. And it's that idea that Andrew kind of mentioned and what you get repeatedly through the film through, as you point out, the eye contact that doesn't maintain like consistent eye lines. It's aware of the camera and it kind of it challenges us. It makes the audience shift in their seats in a way that I think is is very effective, I think. I, I agree. That's that's wonderful. Um, all, all right. Um, in terms of kind of, of other stuff about the movie, to the, just to talk about, one of the things I, I do really like about it is that kind of dreamlike quality where everything is abstracted and everything is metaphor. Where it, right. And I, I think this is maybe something that maybe... You know, again, all that national, all the stuff about nationalism and patriotism, I think, is entirely valid. And again, it's written by people who know far more about the material than I do. Um, right. But I think I maybe forgive it that, or maybe I'm not personally as as kind of worried or concerned about that because a lot of this feels very ethereal and very unreal and very metaphorical, kind of almost like a fairy tale, where you have mm-hmm. things like that sequence where he like wades into the bog. And he wades into the quagmire and it becomes this metaphor for crossing a threshold from which he can never return. But a very literal manifestation of that. Um, things like the way in which, you know, and I think I think you kind of alluded to this earlier, Lee. Things like the way in which the movie uses animals and the way in which it uses this comparison or equation between people and animals. So, like, you have um, obviously the emphasis on farmyard animals within the movie. Uh, but you have things like, you know, the kind of the the child barking like a dog, the the focus on the weird. Um, what is it on the on the on the shoulder of the Nazi? Yeah. What is that? Is it a lemur? It, I don't know. Yeah. I, I want to say like a lemur or a sloth, but that like it's Eastern Europe. I... 
It's very strange. Sorry, I know this not not a quest, then, not a well, question. There there is something very kind of there 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 is something kind of unreal about that whole thing. And I I, I think I think it, it like like having the lemur is just another kind of layer of um kind of uncanniness. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like there 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 there's a sort of a debauched quality to them. There's like Weimar Weimar German and uh, where they're bullying of, the intellectuals and kind of yeah, like draping yeah, yeah. the and the, they're the, like the, taking the off each other's clothes head. and all this sort of stuff yeah. and it feels very kind of um well, the breakdown of civilization, the breakdown of any moral order or any sense of yeah, rather sense. rather than the kind of um, the way we're used to seeing Nazis portrayed as being these very kind of um, uh, cold and calculating, the, yeah, the, st- yeah. the stereotype of fascists as very like rational and very stoic, um, yeah. that kind of fetishization of them almost as like, well, at least they made the trains run on time. Right. Um, and, whereas right. here they're animals. Yeah, and they 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 sort of they weirds them, um, yeah. uh, to to which kind of I I I guess goes with the with the film's aesthetic with the with all of the kind of warping and distortion. The... I mean, like you have the sequence where the local commandant comes in and has like dinner with the family, and it's very much like a something from a fairy tales, the big bad wolf, mm-hmm. and the idea is that almost as if the villagers believe that if they feed this man. If they give him what he wants, he will let them go at the end or and and kind of the, the realization that no, no, he won't. Um, yeah, I find that all very, very effective. It um, is. I, I haven't found like a good way to articulate this yet, but it, it's really interesting to me how the film does feel just truly mythological and right outside mm. of reality. But at the same time, it feels too truthful. It's almost like unbearable at, at times with how truthful it actually is. And I think part of that comes from most of the people involved in the creation of the film s- seeing Cataclysm up close, right? Like Klimov recalls seeing Stalingrad on fire, yeah. right? Like he, he said the water was on fire. He said everything was on fire as, as a kid when he had to flee with his mother and his, his little brother. But at the same time, the, the film is almost an obvious or not obvious is the wrong word, literal take on the prelapsarian ideal where, you know, you're, you're sort of on the, the, the teetering edge of the fall of humanity. Right. And it's, it's, it's also like the, the hero's journey. It starts with this naive kid pulling a gun out of the sand, which was his rite of passage into the partisan army. And almost the entire way, he's not allowed to have control of his own destiny. He doesn't assert himself through violence. He doesn't learn anything about himself. He just dies on the inside. And it's this perversion of that of those tenets that that usually um, preface mythological stories, uh, fairy tales. It's like an upside down fairy tale. Uh, I said that um, the the Green Knight was an upside down Jesus story, and and this this kind of also fits in that in that category. And it's I don't understand um, on an intellectual level how that can coexist with with so much just aching truth. It's it's really interesting. Yeah, kind of the and the way yeah the reconciling of those two things where it is it is both like incredibly true and incredibly documented like again mm-hmm. you know you, you point out that uh Ale's adamovich um like he wrote the book that inspired this Catan, mm-hmm. um, which he published in 1971 but like all of the accounts of those villages are in there it's all based on fact everything in this comes from witness testimony mm-hmm. but you're right it feels unreal it feels which is 
an incredible thing because you watch it and you you know that it's not even if you didn't know that it's based on a book you also know that these things were really happening right. which is is a, an incredible thing to to accomplish an incredible directorial kind of feat it is um but lee it's sorry to, just to turn the floor over to you because we like to, to this point we've been kind of we've been kind of like iffy on come and see like we've you know andrew's <laughs> had his punches he's, he's made his kind of uh argument against the movie what I is take no pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> but is there anything you want to talk about? Anything that like you want to talk about in terms of like your love of come and see? Sure. So, and, and again, this in a different context can be a criticism. I guess I'm just weird, but I, I love, <laughs> like, I, I think this film belongs in a really interesting genealogical sequence of films that starts with the cranes are flying. And then you get uh, Tarkovsky's narrative debut, which I think you guys might enjoy. It, it's no stalker, I promise. Um, Ivan's childhood, <laughs> where he Ivan's he, childhood. Mm-hmm, he explores very similar themes. You know, what does war do to a child? And you know, it it explores like Ivan's connection with his mother, and it, it's really interesting. And he sort of looks to the heavens, and it's you know, it's Tarkovsky, so it's transcendental. And then you get. Um, uh, Larissa Shepitko, um, Klimov's late wife, she made a film called The Ascent in 1977, which is also very, very staunchly anti-war. And those characters also sort of look to the heavens and, and try to find these, these spiritual truths. And I think what makes Come and See so wonderful is that when the main character looks up, he doesn't see God. He sees planes that are going to drop bombs, right? He does, there, there is no like spiritual truth to be found in war. There is no triumph of the human spirit. It's all hell. And it's it's just there to degrade the human spirit. And that something about that reality, not to criticize the other films, because I do think they are all masterpieces from The Cranes Are Flying to The Ascent. They're all incredible. But I, I think where those films are poems, Come and See is a screen, right? And, and it, it really conveys a lot of what we are afraid of uh, just uh, about the depths of the human spirit. And I absolutely love that. I feel like I'm repeating myself because I kind of already said this, but I think that's a very specific thing. If, if you watch those films in sequence with one another and then you watch Come and See, it feels like it was born out of those. It's it's homoousian. It's of the same thing, but it's expressed in a very different way. And I think that gives it a very unique merit, sort of like how you watch Roots and then you watch 12 Years a Slave. They're of the same thing, but they're conveying it in a very, very, very different way with a lot more historical perspective, I would argue. And, and the idea that, yeah, that one is in, an evolution, perhaps, of, of the mm-hmm. it's kind of like a development along those lines. Because, I mean, Come and See is obviously like hugely, hugely influential. I mean, um, Son of Saul, which is another one of those movies that I've seen that once. Oh, okay. Yep. You, you go. You, no, no, you're I, far I was, more qualified. <laughs> I was just going to mention that Son of Saul takes what we mentioned about, you know, violence kind of happening on the periphery to the extreme, right? You don't yeah. see anything. Yeah. All of it takes yeah, place in close up of, of the character. I don't know why I'm gesturing. This is an audio medium, but I'm making a little <laughs> gesture with my hands to illustrate that I understand what Lee's talking about. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, no worries. But everything is, is conveyed through that central performance and the sound design. And I think it's really interesting that, that come and see has, you know, its roots are firmly rooted in come and see. But another interesting link that people won't make is is the cinema of someone like Ari Aster, right? Like his his cinema, he he's written about come and see actually as like the most important, well, one of the most important films to him. And he says like, it has the, I think the last line of his review is that it makes other films feel utterly superfluous. And I think that's that's true. But if you look at a lot of what Ari Aster does and how he mines for horror, it's very similar. 
um, not not in the visceral scenes, but I'm thinking about in Hereditary when the really horrific take your breath away moment happens midway through yeah. the film. You don't see what, what happened in the back seat. The camera stays with the brother in the front seat and it's way more effective that way. And, and I think that you can link that to what our Ari Aster got from films like Come and See. And I think that's interesting. And and I think like and again, at the risk of kind of like underscoring Andrew's point, like it's notable that when people think about um, Hereditary, a lot of the stuff is those intense close ups. It's almost become mimetic, like where it's Tony Collette's performance is the centerpiece of Hereditary because it's so much about her reacting and witnessing and observing. And again, very much in that kind of come and see way where the camera is very squarely on her face mm-hmm. and it's trusting her to sell the horror and again you could argue the same thing with Florence Pugh in in uh, Midsummer as well yep. where you have a similar sort of thing and like Midsummer is interesting sorry this is turning into the Ari Aster podcast <laughs> and I apologize to our <laughs> listeners and to Andrew um but things like the way in which like I I don't necessarily like Aster as much as I think I think you do Lee but like mm-hmm. one of the things I think he's really good at and really effective at and something I really admire is the way in which he portrays horror in very matter-of-fact ways that are not how you expect them to be portrayed in mm-hmm. conventional American horror cinema. Mm-hmm. In Midsummer, the most obvious example is a lot of it takes place brightly lit during the day in right. wide shots, right. um, which is not how you're used to seeing these things conveyed. Exactly. And I think, yeah, maybe that is something that comes from Come and See as well, where the camera is often, it's these long takes, it's very matter-of-fact. You're not cutting in, you're not cutting out, you're not dis- you are disorienting the audience by holding the long take, because mm-hmm. that's the interesting thing about long takes, is that right. people tend to assume that long takes are just like you're staring at something right and it should be less it should be less disorienting to you than just cutting rapidly right but the because how your brain processes movies cutting rapidly helps you process because you're like oh that's a new piece of information right. i'm gonna file that away that's a new piece of information i'm gonna file right. that away that's manageable when right. you leave a long take running it's like no this is all one big piece of information that you have to process in real time as it's happening in front of you yes um but i think that like, yeah, I can definitely, now that you mentioned, I can definitely see <laughs> as bizarre a connection as it is to make, um, like the connection between something like Come and See and something like Midsummer, something in Hereditary. That's yeah. Also, sure. just to, to piggyback on your point about Midsummer, I think one interesting thing to, to note about that film, if you don't want to watch the entire thing, I think the first 15 minutes of Midsummer are some of the best filmmaking of the last decade. Um, in Danny's apartment, when she's on the phone and, you know, she's, she's trying to get an answer, the close up evolves. She starts at one point one point without cutting leans in and then leans in again and it goes from like this standard close-up to like a bergman-esque face fills the frame and that's where you get the close-ups her reaction to what she thinks is about to happen she understands the condition of her sister and she is worried sick right but when it actually happens when she's screaming her head off you get a medium flat objective wide that never cuts in and in fact it just kind of uses that as a means to an end to cut to the the title card right I think that's one of the most interesting sequences of filmmaking of the last decade. And I think people should just go back and revisit those first 15 minutes or so before it gets bright. I think when you spend time in Danny's apartment, it's it's absolutely phenomenal. So that's just my little will. And I, I will say again, as somebody who maybe doesn't love Hereditary Midsummer as much as that, I will say the opening sequence of Midsummer is really, really uncomfortable. It's something that's really <laughs> stayed with me. It's It's one of the most disturbing sequences that I've seen. And I... Like, objectively, I can't quite put my finger on it because I've, I've seen things that are more graphic and more unsettling and more violent. Right. But it's like, no, that that image and the way in which it's presented, the way in which it's framed, everything you said, it kind of stays with me. Sorry, we should get back to talking about Come and See. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, 
But uh, anything else you want to add there, just in terms of like come and see, in terms of the filmmaking, in terms of the craft, in terms of the movie, in terms of your reaction to it? I mean, it's I should have written all of this out. Like I have, I love everything about it. Like I think the the use of Steadicam is the best, at least I know of. And I could be missing something, but I mean, if you guys want to chime in with the other examples of Steadicam, but I I have never seen a film use it this effectively because. I, I could be mistaken. I, I, ha- I don't have any access to like production notes or a shot list or anything, but the film starts in a very locked off, steady way. And the more you get into it, the yeah. more the camera moves, right? Yeah. It, you, you, you track the mother back into the house when she sees off her, her son and the camera runs with her. Um, and and I, I love the, the use of Steadicam. Another thing that I meant to mention before, um, when, when Darren, you, you were talking about uh, the, the symbols, and how unapologetically symbolic the film is. When they go the back dolls. to the village, the, the dolls, I was just going to mention that. Sorry. First of all, that that scene is terrifying when you know where it's leading. You know, that the flies are all in the air and you're like, something is really, really wrong. Um, yeah. uh, Glacia gags on her food and you're like, oh God, something, something is wrong. And the dolls being lined up almost in a mirror shot with the, the villagers. And, and that yeah, shot of the villagers, uh, Deacons talks about it as being one of the most terrifying shots ever. And it is like it, it's brief and you see it just long enough for it to register in your mind and, and maybe holds for like a second longer than you want it to. And then it, it cuts. and You never see it again. And, and Fleur never looks back himself, but he knows what what happened. Um, I just want to mention that as, as being like overtly symbolic in, in how much I loved it. Oh, it is horrific. And she sees. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but he, he, he won't. What? And he, he refuses to. And it's like you have that like he wades into this thing. And again, the idea of just being swallowed. As Lee mentioned, the upside down fairy tale quality of it, where he's like crossing over. He's literally crossing and cannot cross back this thing that will kind of swallow him. Um, and again, you mentioned the symbolism, things like the nest, the idea that like when they're getting into the barn, when they're going to tell the, you know, the people to leave their children in the barn as it's burning, they destroy a nest beforehand. They destroy a big nest up the top right. of it, which again is just this this very striking, very evocative, very, like you'd almost be, it's almost on the nose, except it somehow fits beautifully with what the film's doing. And yet you, you mentioned the use of kind of Steadicam and the way in which as the film goes on, the shots become longer and they become more fluid. And again, it feels like it's becoming unmoored, which makes sense thematically because it's like, yeah, as as Floria kind of goes into this, he's becoming increasingly detached from any frame of reality that people recognize. But like that for those closing 40 minutes um, in, in the village where the camera is like the camera's moving into and out of homes, it's moving around, it's sweeping between trucks, it's kind of following various points of interest in the shots like up until that point, so much of the movie has felt so carefully and rigidly constructed. And of course, those mm-hmm. shots are carefully and rigidly constructed. Right. You have to choreograph something like that incredibly carefully. But it feels so chaotic and so uncomfortable and so uncanny because up to that point, so much of the movie has been, as you point out, relatively still, relatively static, um, relatively contained, like long takes, but we're going we're going A to B or we're going A right. to B back to A. Whereas right. once you get to the village and things start going completely off the wall, it's you become swallowed by by the, the carnage and the chaos in a way that is very effective, uh, very unsettling I, I and very disorienting. Sorry. I agree. I also wanted to um, to get more clarity on uh, something that was mentioned before about Apocalypse Now. Someone saying that that wasn't an anti-war film. I would like to, to hear the, the reasoning for that. 
yeah, no, I think Francis Ford Coppola's made the comment, and I'll actually just dig it out. We're going to go to the fact machine and check. Two seconds. <laughs> <laughs> well, this, the thing is that the, it's very difficult to make an anti-war film. That it, that it, that's, um, like, but just by kind of depicting war, you kind of... Um, you end up whether you, whether you're trying to or not, kind of almost fetishizing it. Yeah, I mean, um, in the in the case of like the, that, it's a kind of like boys with toys thing. Well, it's that Truffaut thing yes. that you mentioned, the idea that when you depict yes. something, you get a sense of scale and spectacle. Uh, sorry, I've come back from the fact machine. Uh, apologies for interrupting that conversation. Um, but like Coppola, and again, this is something that when we we did a little season of Coppola movies, and he talked about it with The Godfather as well, where it's like, no, The Godfather is a romantic movie about the mob, and I do own that romanticism, that nostalgia, and I kind of regret it, but I accept that it's inevitable. So, you know, when when he's being interviewed by The Guardian, uh, August 2019, uh, it, 20 years ago now, I think, roughly, uh, in, in what it actually feels like. Um, but, <laughs> but he's he's asked like he, he's asked about whether or not it's an anti-war movie and Coppola hesitates to call it anti-war no one wants to make a pro-war film everyone wants to make an anti-war film he says but an anti-war film I always thought should be like Kon Ichi Kawa's 1956 post-second world war drama The Burmese Harp something filled with love and peace and tranquility and happiness. It shouldn't have sequences of violence that inspire a lust for violence. Apocalypse Now has stirring scenes of helicopters attacking innocent people. That's not anti-war. He pitches his own alternative by way of counterexample. I always thought that the perfect anti-war film would be a story in Iraq about a family who were going to have their daughter be married and different relatives were going to come to the wedding. The people managed to come. Maybe there'd be some dangers, but no one would get blown up. Nobody would get hurt. They would dance at the wedding. That would be an anti-war film. An anti-war film cannot glorify war, and Apocalypse Now arguably does. Certain sequences have been used to rev people up to be warlike. And then the cherry on top, Francis Ford Coppola, great interview subject. I ask him if he feels any guilt. No, he says. I don't feel guilty because I know my role in the whole process, um, which I kind of like. Um, wow. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is quite a lot. Wow. <laughs> But okay, um, okay it, not... it's interesting as well. That the oh, sorry, sorry, no, no we're not talking more about Coppola. <laughs> <laughs> we that, we spent five weeks on Coppola. No, go for it, Lee. Uh, we did. No, you haven't. You haven't talked about Coppola. Myself and Andrew have talked enough about Coppola. You haven't talked about Coppola. It's this idea. First of all, I think broad statements like any depiction of X equals Y is is very reductive in in conversations about art because context matters. I won't say intention matters all that much, but but context matters a lot, right? And Apocalypse Now doesn't, I could be just misremembering because I haven't seen it in years, but I don't remember anything in it that could be mistaken for glorification. Not not like on I, the battlefield, right? I, I, I think said, I think there's maybe like... I, Again, Depends I don't. Depends on the audience. That's it exactly. I don't. I don't yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I watch it and, and go. And the movie rah, isn't rah, responsible rah. for that. Yeah, right, which is something right. I think Coppola grapples with. You know, whether the conversation is in large part about an audience misunderstanding a work of art. Like it's not something right. that Coppola uh, hasn't right. thought about. But like things and it's like not something that he owns either. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like that, that is not my responsibility. Uh, <laughs> well, no, but 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 that he isn't. No, all, all all he does is he cre creates a movie. Yeah, right. There, there, um, but things like the the ride of the Valkyrie sequence, for example, and which which you know he, is something that 
in the movie is horrific. Colonel Kilgore is a monster uh, and it's right. frankly terrifying and an amazing performance from Duval. But you can kind of, if you squint and maybe if you look at like parodies and you look at the way in which pop culture has kind of appropriated that, you can perhaps see how playing Ride of the Valkyries as a bunch of helicopters ride over the horizon and a gung-ho, like war-happy American kind of hero mm. just wants to go surfing on the beaches. You can kind right. of see how if you're not already on the wavelength of this is insane, uh, this right. entire country is insane, this entire situation in which this country has placed itself in this other side of the world is insane. You can right. see people going, no, that's actually a really cool sequence. The music is great. <laughs> yeah. The shots are fantastic. <laughs> well, yeah. Those helicopters look great. Duval is a badass. I guess you can... Con- <laughs> yeah, because yeah. vi- violence isn't just upsetting. It's like, it's thrilling. Right. right. Yeah, the adrenaline. You get the adrenaline rush when yeah. you do that sort of stuff. Right. And I think, and, and may, may no, be, this movie isn't. Yeah, that's what I was, about I was to just going to say. That yeah. I was about to say yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like there's. I don't know if there's a way to watch this and say, "Oh yeah, those yeah. those Nazis are getting it done," right? Like, like no, this no. is not. It's not seductive. And, it's not. And I don't think we get much joy out of like the the Nazis getting it at the end. It almost feels kind of pathetic as well. Exactly. Yeah. So well, as exactly. you point out, they deny the mythology of it, where you have the stuff mm-hmm. where it's building up for this sort of like gruesome, grotesque, horrible retribution that will be kind of poetic, and you know it'll be hard to watch, but it'll at least bring some sense of symmetry to the whole thing. You mm-hmm. know, you burned our families alive, we'll burn you alive, and instead you just get the bang, 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 bang spray. Uh, bullet spray right. they're all dead uh, which almost again denies you that catharsis i guess which is, is kind of kind of effective there i think um, i think the more I, I sit here and think um the more i realize i probably should have picked 12 years of slave because i have so much <laughs> to say <laughs> like these films are are very related at, at least in in my mind in, in the ways in which their main characters are subjected to these just horrific events and they end in these ways that deny you that closure that you want so badly. Right. Like Solomon Northup disappeared after he, you know, got his freedom. He went back to free people and he disappeared, never heard from again. Right. Right. And even within the narrative, you have like the Brad Pitt character who shows up, which is not the ending that you want. You want Solomon to free himself. You want Solomon to be empowered. And, And it just happens. No, that's not the story. Exactly. And, and Patsy doesn't get free. You know, uh, she she deals with her circumstances. But to me, those those are the best films like that depict this sort of social catastrophe, this just complete failing of, of humanity. They don't end in these ways that hold you close and, and reassure you. Right. Like what was uh, I don't remember the exact quote when Stanley Kubrick talked about Schindler's List, but he's like, that's a film about victory. The Holocaust is about failure. Right. And like okay. that makes sense in, in, in the context of Spielberg. Right. Who who countered um, Foucault's quote with saying, like, every war movie, good or bad, is an anti-war movie. It's like, oh, that makes sense coming from you. Yeah. And you that's a very Schindler's Spielberg sense. perspective. Yes. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why I brought that up. But yeah. Well, he's a very <laughs> kind of hopeful um, uh, director, I guess. And 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 I think he he. Um, like you see as well in stuff like Munich, that it, 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 well I don't know if 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 you can kind of, um, he he's not uh, cynical I guess is that maybe a better way of 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 saying it. he finds the, the, like the it's the the the, the heroism mm-hmm. kind of of that uh, uh, revenge story. Um, I, I think, again, I this is not a Spielberg anyway, podcast. Sorry, sorry, again, sorry, this, this sorry. is no, tangible. Right. We spent, we spent oh, five sorry. minutes on Aster. We spent five minutes on Spielberg. But no, I, I, like, I, I kind of do think late Spielberg's interesting because you kind of see Spielberg grappling with 
perhaps his right. earlier filmmaking where something like mm-hmm. Munich is weird and uncomfortable and unpleasant and like mm-hmm. d- I don't think offers the audience the catharsis that they think they want like people mock that sex scene it... but that sex scene feels like it's deliberately like uncomfortable and uncanny and meant to feel your skin crawl um maybe I don't know yeah I, I think <laughs> it can give catharsis like um Obviously, like I'm, 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 I'm not uh, qualified to 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 kind of go go into it, but I feel like I've heard uh, kind of discussions, even in pop culture, from like Jewish audiences. Oh, oh, this is they're... Seth Rogen in Knocked Up. Exactly. Yeah. I yeah, love that yeah. I knew immediately which what you were talking about. I was trying to think of what it was. Yeah, yeah, but that kind of idea of like um, Eric Bana making you know, Jewish men sexy. Um, and exactly, making Jewish right, violence yeah. sexy. Um, oh God. Sorry. Again, this is a come and see podcast about healing. Right. <laughs> uh, just just to bring it back to something else that I appreciate about come and see. Um, technically, the split diopter shots. Um, they are absolutely breathtaking in this film. Um, the most memorable one is going to be the the girl uh, after she gets completely assaulted you get that split screen split diopter she's on the left and the and he takes mm -hmm. the canister on the right yeah 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 and when when you're watching it for a first time you think that he's looking directly at her and you know it's revealed that he's not which which is probably more devastating right but he gives the the quote to kind of circle back what what glacier told him at the beginning of the film he's like i want to love i want children he knows what happened to her and he knows that that dream is long gone he makes that connection and gives that quote without even looking at it. Uh, something inside of him has has died. And I think that that scene rhymes really well with the opening when they're so uncomfortably staring into each other's eyes, giving these, you know, she she gives him this, this talk, like, I exist, I'm here. And then at, by the end of the film, he's not even looking at the girl after she goes through the, just all of the most horrific things you could ever imagine. Um, and, and just on a technical level, I've never seen a split doctor used better. Um, I mean, I guess you could debate, you know, like with, with De Palma, right? Like the, the master of the split screen and split diopter, but they're often used for like really sleazy reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps a bit, a bit more, a bit less kind of uh, elegant in their deployment. Right. Um, right. But um, all right. Is there anything else you want to talk about with, with Come and See? Anything we haven't discussed or anything jumping out at you? I feel like after this, I'm, I'm really going to kick yourself <laughs> yeah um i mean I, I wrote like some chicken scratch notes one, one of the things that i'll mention before you know i just i say that i don't have anything else to talk about is is that it denies this idea of symbolic immortality by the end of the film um in films like saving private ryan again not to make this about spielberg but that's like the most immediate <laughs> example i have uh you don't have to wonder whether or not that sacrifice was meaningful in, in saving private ryan he turns out to be a great man revered by his grandchildren and his children, his his wife and all of this other stuff. You get that epilogue in the graveyard and it's it gives you that closure. Like yeah. this sacrifice mm. was meaningful. No such thing happens in, in come and see. In fact, I would argue the opposite happens where you go through this in, this complete endurance test and, and you just see just abject grossness only to see that like he could have showed you much worse. Right. Like he, he shows you like real Holocaust footage and then he gives you a cut and, and like a title card to interrupt the diegetic ending of the film to say 628 villages were burned to the ground by the Nazis. He denies you this symbolic immortality. 
the, none of these characters live a meaningful life after this because the atrocity is, is what matters. And I think that's a, a profound thing. And I wanted to mention that before I left. And, I, and, I, and again, it's kind of interesting to, to put that in the context of Andrew's observation earlier, where the film is is actively hostile. Like so much of American cinema, and it's it's one of the big criticisms of American cinema when it does things, like as you point out, tries to make Schindler's List. Uh, you try to make these movies about these things where there's an insistence in American cinema in offering a happy ending. Mm-hmm. For the most part, so like to and right. you know to, to talk like just randomly to pick an example, things like say Modern Times, which we covered recently, where you have this like society that will chew Charlie Chaplin up, chew the tramp up, spit him out. He won't find anywhere to call his home, but at the end he gets up with the gamine and he walks down the road side by side with somebody who kind of loves him, and so you have this idea that maybe maybe this isn't Sm- so bad. Smile, smile. Yeah, he's literally <laughs> saying smile though your heart is breaking, and right. so you have this kind of this idea of the happy ending as something that is intrinsic or necessary um and i think it's it's to andrew's point about come and see being a movie that almost brutalizes its audience i think andrew describes doesn't really care for bringing its audience on board or making them feel comfortable i that that ending feels very much of a, of a piece with that where it's like no you you don't get the catharsis you get that thing where as eber points out even the inclusion of beautiful classical music feels hollow because you are right. aware as an audience member that it is only there for you to make right. you feel better about yourself if you are shallow enough to be like, ah, oh, classical music. I can feel good now. <laughs> the movie's over. Right. Um, right. You don't pay a requiem. But but I mean it it you know, even that though, it's yeah. a level of civility. It's it's like a level of culture that the movie has kind it's of like still morbid. Yeah. It, yeah. 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 Um all right. Well, just to give Lee a chance to, because Lee, Lee's saying there, and like he, you, you're going to feel bad uh, if we wrap up and you kind of go, I've thought of something. I'm just going to go off on a quick tangent here about stuff that I noticed. And if at the end of it, we'll come back. So if you want to jump in on any thoughts there, uh, one of the interesting kind of things just about Come and See uh, in terms of like researching it, in terms of digging into it, is the idea that this was one of the first Soviet films to come West, to kind of to break through the Iron Curtain. Um, towards the end of the Cold War with the Glasnost era. This is one of the first big Soviet films to open in the US at roughly the same time that it opened uh, in Russia to come across where you had Klemov bringing the film across, introducing it to audiences uh, in like New York, uh, in Los Angeles. You had this kind of opening of the Soviet Union again um, through Glasnost allowing these films and these cultural elements to cross over into the West. I think Tarkovsky defected to the West in like 1984, which feels somewhat ironic then that just three years later, the, the Soviet Union's like, no, here, have all the movies. Uh, we will share all of it with the world. But you have things like, uh, you know, in 1986, uh, the Museum of Modern Art in New York does a salute to the Soviet republics where they film something like, where they screen something like 30 years of Soviet cinema. You have like in November 1986, you have like UCLA doing festival screenings Um, in like March. You have like directors, as we mentioned, from Los Angeles and, you know, from America and from the Soviet Union sitting down together to like watch their movies and talk about their movies. Um, And it's kind of fascinating that like come and see arrives at this point of kind of cultural union almost between them where like they're talking about it reaching a point in like 1987 where these films were so popular and so successful that you had like actual like Russian expat audiences 
that would like attend screenings in Los Angeles uh, or New York in Brooklyn and Queens to audiences as large as like 1,500 people um, going to see these movies by like directors and not just like Klemov, not just Tarkovsky, not just the high level stuff. People like, um, and again, I don't know his films, but I love this description of him. Um, Elder Razanov. The writer-director who is known as, and I quote, the Russian Billy Wilder on one hand and the Russian Johnny Carson on the other. Um, The idea that, yeah, you had this kind of opening up of the Soviet Union uh, and the kind of merging of American and kind of Soviet culture and come and see existing just like right in the perfect place there. That's something that I find kind of really interesting in terms of the movie's cultural legacy and perhaps like why it broke through. Why it is, you know, now the only Soviet film apart from uh, Dursu Uzala on the 250, despite obviously, as we mentioned, the rich cultural history of the USSR. Um, so I find maybe that's something that I thought was kind of worth pointing out and worth acknowledging. Um, yeah. But Lee, anything, anything come back to you in terms of come and see? Um, just as as a way to kind of is this going to be like the shortest episode you guys have ever done? I'm no, no. <laughs> okay, all right. That, no, that makes yeah. me feel a little better. But one one thing that makes Darren me feel... just really loves things. Like, <laughs> <laughs> super loud. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, as a critic, this really bothers me when I read reviews that say stuff like this or watch reviews. But when people say things like "you just have to experience the film," you know, like right. it, trying to intellectualize it feels transgressive and, and kind of gross. This film kind of fits that for me where I mm. sh- could, could I comb over it? Sure. Like I, I could sit down with a notepad and take notes at, on, on every scene. And, but that just feels wrong. I, I think that people need to experience it. And I think that people need to experience it with an open mind. Um, sure. The, the brutality is there, but look for the poetry as well. Look for what's happening with the visuals. As I mentioned, the the kill Hitler sequence being one of the genuinely profound moments in the film, look out for stuff like that, because I think that trying to explain it in words doesn't do it justice. I think you just should experience the film, if I'm at liberty to say something like that. But yeah. No, absolutely. I think you definitely yeah. are. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that that it, it kind of has that ineffable quality i guess yeah uh-huh. all right um so that then about wraps it up then unless there's anything either andrew or lee want to say about the movie that we haven't already discussed um well- just just go watch it um it's on the criterion <laughs> channel all of the supplements are there as well like yeah. you can watch the, the real life testimonial documentaries yeah, yeah you can watch uh Klimov and his brother talk about it the production designer talks about it everything is there so go watch it. If you have to do it on a free trial, that's totally fine. Just <laughs> just watch it. <laughs> They're doing a really good like Paramount pre-code season now as well. You can get in on that as well. Um, all right, then. So we normally what we normally do at the end of the podcast, Darren says, stuttering over his own words, is we ask our guests to recommend something for audience. It can be Ooh. something related to the movie, something unrelated to the movie, just something that you're enjoying that brings you joy and you think audiences might like as well. So to give Lee a cool. chance to think about it, I'm going to ask Andrew to go first. Um, I read, I think I've recommended on the podcast before, um, Victor Frankl's Man's Search of Meaning, when we were kind of talking more about the, the Holocaust. Now it is certainly... Life is beautiful, I think. Wasn't that the case? I think it might have been. Yeah. Now it is a, it's a different perspective to this. It's kind of like we, we spoke about some of the movies that were maybe kind of, um, leading up to this 
in terms of the legacy and almost kind of coming to the conclusion of absolute hopelessness, I guess. I, 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 or, or, or maybe it's unfair to characterize like that. But the, 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 uh, the thing that I'm recommending this time around is uh, Yes to Life um, in Spite of Everything, which is another Victor um, Frankl publication that just got kind of translated into English a few years ago. Um, and it's a series of lectures and it's basically kind of descri- describing um, it's a, it's an interesting thing because it, it's it's trying to kind of give a meaning to life and addressing kind of questions like uh, suicide and addressing his experience in the um, concentration camps and I think something he goes into as well is the he's always very um, uh, clear that in the concentration camps there were soldiers who tried to protect them and that there were um, uh, inmates who were capos, who were... um, Collaborators, uh, kind of. Collaborators and guilty of, like, horrendous things kind of during the Holocaust. So then... he, what, what he does is, and I, I, I really found it a helpful reading, is it, it gives a purpose, I guess. Because it, 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 the, the question that a lot of people felt asked of them was, you know, what is the point? Or like, how, how can I live in a world like this? What can I expect from the world? But I, 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 he sort of reframes the question more in terms of what does the world ask of you, uh, which, which, which at the time reading it, I thought was very kind of helpful and life affirming, and it it is optimistic, and you can kind of, um, I suppose, maybe disagree with it, but, um, but like I said, it's um, it can it can provide that that sort of um, meaning. For people who are looking for it, so yeah, no, I, I I I enjoyed that a lot lately. And and Lee, what would you recommend? What are you enjoying at the moment? Oh boy, um, hopefully I don't drag on too long because I've my life is watching movies and everything. <laughs> but, um, no, no, no. <laughs> uh, lately, just Go due to uh, geopolitical events happening right now, I've been really into the cinema of, and I'm gonna truly butcher his name, um, Andrei Zvetskinsev. He made. The Return, The Banishment, a uh, 2014 masterpiece, in my opinion, uh, Leviathan. He made a film called Loveless. And one of the reasons I think this is significant, he's a Russian filmmaker. And just to give you an idea of what Leviathan is, it's a retelling of Job. So think like the the Coen's um, A Serious Man. Man. Yeah. So what what's happening is a guy who lives in a family home um, that he says is built by his hands is is just he's being essentially evacuated from his own property. The, the state has claimed his property. And the guy responsible is a mayor who's just a bureaucrat. He drinks regularly with the with the town priest. Um, so there's like no separation of church and state. He's he's outwardly uh, corrupt. He sits in his office under a portrait of Putin. And, you know, he he shows up to this man's home to say, like, you people are insects to me. What's yours is mine. 
And, you know, it's only a matter of time before you have to leave. So don't prolong this. So it's, it's one of the most scathing critiques of contemporary Russia from a Russian filmmaker. And it's, it's shocking that it came out, that it, you know, that it actually got past their censors. And then you have a film like Loveless that even more so drives this critique home. And I can't stress enough how beautiful these these films actually are. Like they're, they're made with such a just a, a beautiful directorial eye, like think Antonioni, like it, it's made in that kind of stark, just gorgeous cinematographic and, and audio artistic in integrity and it's it's wonderful so the films of Andrei Zvetskinsev I would recommend watching his films in order because they do get more difficult as they go along not in like this Tarkovskian way but just with subject matter frankly like Leviathan is one of the most depressing films you can watch and Loveless even more so um, but The Return is a good place to start and then The Banishment um, then Elena is one of his most hopeful films and you know it's like this anti-capitalist film that I won't get into and spoil for you but just watch his films. And then another recommendation I have for you um, is a bit more of an escapist route. So there's a director named Abbas Kiriostami. Uh, he made the Coker trilogy, um, Close Up. Uh, he made Taste of Cherry um, and, and a few other films. But what's really interesting about him is that I think his movies challenge in, in very interesting and artistic ways. He was a very playful filmmaker. Um, just for an example, the Coker trilogy starts with this very simple story of a little boy who wants to get his classmates homework to him in Iran. So he's, you know, he goes on this little journey to get the homework to his friend. And that's all the film is. But then a, a real life earthquake hit the region and several people died. So the second film is about finding the people who survived in the first film. So the second film is about the first film. And then the third film is about a real life love story that happened on the set of the second film. So each film acknowledges <laughs> the film before it. And it's this really playful thing. And I think like another film close up really brings in the question that what like what's the difference between narrative film and documentary, where it's clearly a film with a script, with the camera, with the film crew. But it's depicting real life events and everyone is played by their real life person. So everyone who lived through the experience plays themselves, essentially, including the director. The director shows up as himself, making the movie, <laughs> conducting these interviews. So you have to question like, okay, what, what am I watching? Is this a documentary? Is this real? And they just get more and more interesting. Um, and I, there is no other way to watch his films. Like you have to watch them chronologically because if you start with his late period stuff, you're going to, it's going to be like watching Stalker. You're like, what? What is happening? Um, and, and for my final recommendation, which is related to one of Curious Tommy's films, I would recommend Drive My Car. It's on HBO Max right now, not to date the podcast, but Drive My Car is a phenomenal film. And if you are at all interested in filmmaking, from editing to cinematography, directing, watch that film. It, it's airtight, perfect. It's three hours long, but it is absolutely phenomenal, engaging. It's not slow cinema. A lot of people have called it slow cinema. It's not. It's just three hours long. So those are my recommendations. Uh, Andre Zvetskinsev, Abbas Kiriostami, and Drive My Car. Cool. Thanks very much. Um, in terms Thank of you. recommendations for myself, again, not to, not to date the podcast, but we are in the middle of the Dublin Film Festival here, so I am watching a bunch of movies while also um, on this podcast. I may have watched a couple of shorts while we were in conversation. No, I didn't. <laughs> um, but... <laughs> 
But uh, a couple of, of good films that I saw there. Uh, one that reminded me a lot of this movie is In the Flow of Words, which is by Elaine Esther Botts, which is basically about interpreters, um, translators, uh, working at the International Criminal Court uh, during the Yugoslavia tribunals in The Hague. And it's this documentary about what it's like to be an interpreter, to have to communicate these terrible things that are happening on behalf of witnesses uh, and to give testimony that isn't yours and to serve as, as uh, one of the one of the translators describes basically a human smartphone. Um, and it, it's a really compelling study of kind of like what that's like, what that must feel like and what that process is. That again kind of reminds me a lot of this movie with the emphasis on the importance of looking and seeing and recognizing atrocity. Um, otherwise, uh, something that's really nice and really playful and might just like liven your mood after watching this. The animated film Mora Mora, uh, which is a, I believe it's directed by uh, Yorga uh, Sedukti, which is just this beautiful animated adventure about the idea that music can save us. It's about a little girl who's stranded on an island and essentially constructs a piano in order to escape. It's just gorgeous. It's stunning to look at. And then finally, um, just one more uh, gratuitous reference to a former guest, uh, hopefully future guest as well of the podcast, uh, Renukni Gregor's Don't Go Where I Can't Find You, uh, screened in the festival. Um, it's a short film. She described it here as, as I believe, like a lesbian in fabric, uh, and it's not an unreasonable uh, description of the movie having seen it. Um, it's this kind of lesbian gothic love story. It's really, really well made. Um, and if you get a chance to see it, I, I would wholeheartedly recommend it. So those are kind of my three recommendations there. All right. So Lee, if it's, listeners... Oh, is sorry. it like the Duke of Burgundy? Yes, that's kind yeah. of what, that's the kind of zone we're going for. It's <laughs> um, amazing. But um, so Lee, if listeners are looking for a bit more Lee, Mar- Lee Murky, if they want a bit more Lee in their lives, where can they find you? Watch out. Watch up. Um, you can look me up on YouTube, The Fake Critic. I should have some new video essays coming soon. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter at your own risk. Uh, cleverly underscore dope. <laughs> Personally, don't recommend it. But if you want to, <laughs> hey, come on over. <laughs> um, and what if, if you're we- already on Twitter and you've let yourself in for that, then yeah. Then, yeah. Yeah. It's a good uh, follow. <laughs> what what I will recommend is actually these essays are really, really good. Uh, your one on the lighthouse from, I think, three years ago is phenomenal to make us all feel very old. Uh, but also I really liked your recent one on Spencer, uh, which is great so, as well. Um, so I recommend those two in particular. Um, Darren says, subtly dissing all of these other video essays. No, they're all really good, but those are the two that kind of jumped out at me. Um all right, you can follow the 250. Uh, we're on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, on iTunes, wherever good podcasts are found. Um, apparently, I'm supposed to say rate, review, and subscribe. Apparently, I'm contractually obliged to say that. So please do feel free to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. One imagines if you Give listen it to five the... stars, I think. <laughs> on, on a scale of five, to be clear, if it's a 10 yeah, scar yeah. system, you know, you may want to scale upwards. But Give it as so many, you... yeah. Give it as positive <laughs> as you can, <laughs> even if you don't think it's that good. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, and also, yeah, we've been looking at the stats. People are listening to this podcast, which is always disconcerting to us. We are flattered. Uh, and thank you very much for your time. And we really, really appreciate it. And thank you very much, Lee, for your time. This has been thank an you, absolute Lee. pleasure. You are this, great. This is wonderful. Thanks so Thanks much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. All right, you guys. Bye. Bye.